with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Welcome. I'm here today with my childhood friend, Yankee Klein. Hi, Yankee. How you doing, Yitzi? Cool. Real good, Baruch Hashem. We're here for the season wrap-up. This is the uh, state of the world t- today. Uh, this episode is going to be a lot more informal and a lot more just run by it. But um, Yankee, if you just look around you're the world today, summarizing it in two or three sentences, what do you see? That's a, it's a really good question. There's a lot of ways you could encapsulate that. I mean, one way to look at it right now is we're standing on the precipice between two possible futures. And I think it's apt to call this quite likely a contender for the end of times. There is no precursor in history, really, for this moment in time. No precursor. Could you elaborate on that idea of there being no precursor? Never before has there been 7 billion people on the planet. The world population was always relatively low. People were living in, on farms and small communities, like a couple hundred might have been considered big, depending when you're talking in time. Like, you look at country pumpkins from today, you know, and you feel like there's a world of difference. You look at people from primitive countries. Now, these people are still far more educated than the nobles, going back in time. So what I'm saying is, you think about all these differences, and um, like we get the sense that history has just kept plodding on, and people keep on being people. But that story's ended, and a new one's begun, once we discovered the atom. Why specifically the discovery of the atom? Well, really the atom bomb. I say that for effect. I, I'm not a historian, I can't tell you what the exact change of a point was, but I feel like the world the, today... Have you seen the Oppenheimer video? Yeah, the quote from the Bhagavad Gita. The one, yeah. Yeah, if, that's terrifying. Yeah, let's see, how does it, how is it? If the, he says, some people laugh, some people cry if you were silent. Um, and I remember the words of, of the Hindu scripture of the Bhagavad Gita. If the radiance of a thousand suns would appear at once, in the sky, that would be like the radiance of the mighty one. Now I am become death, the shatterer of worlds. And then Oppenheimer concludes, I suppose we all felt that way, one way or another. <laughs> and, and to me, there's no way to react to that except with like a genuine sense of, of, of terror and religious awe, because that is what the Manhattan Project was. They, they took 
they took the lightning bolt from Zeus. I mean, they took the lightning bolt from Krishna in, in the Hindu sense. They um, got the weapons of the gods that could destroy worlds, and now humans have those. So, I mean, there's a sort of psychic sense in which there's a, there's a, a, a maybe technological apotheosis that occurs at that moment when humankind now are not only responsible for individual lives and, and um, tribal and regional lives, but in, some, in a sense a human being, specifically the president of America or the premier of Russia, can be morally responsible for the entire planet. That's something new. But I don't know if that, so that, that's, a, that's a technological aspect, what do you, but what, how do you mean that? Not exactly that. We were discussing this a few days ago of the many apocalypses that might, that might occur in our lifetime. Um, a lot of them seem inevitable and immediate. What do you, what do you make, like, how would you, how would you list, list like four or five that you think are okay. reasonable in our lifetime? And also byproducts specifically of the age we've arrived at. AI so, for one. AI, gotcha. AI is a big one. It seems like all the really smart people are, are talking about AI. And everyone else doesn't quite, don't have the abstraction to figure out what exactly that means. Elias Yudkowsky wrote this recent piece that uh, uh, Scott Alexander cross posted on Slate Star Codex, which, was, um, which said there's no fire alarm for artificial general intelligence, meaning there's no event, there's, not, there's never going to be a historical event where like, a robot like, gets sort of powerful and like, shoots up a city and then like, gets oh, more down. Wow. And then everyone's like, oh shit, I guess we should start taking the robot seriously. Yeah, yeah. That stage doesn't exist. It's like the yeah. moment you get 90 IQ in a robot, you get probably, you probably get the singularity. You probably get that robot improving itself. Did you say 90 IQ? Roughly. Like you can teach someone who has an IQ of 90 computer programming or self-development, <coughs> more importantly. And then the, the, the computers can climb to 100 to 160 to mm -hmm. into the thousands within a matter of hours, theoretically. We don't yeah. know. But the, but the leap from a computer having no power of the world to having all the power in the world mm. is a very quick one. And at least Yudkowsky is arguing that there will never be a time when it's culturally acceptable to start worrying about this. Because there'll <laughs> never be a, an almost, you know? There's nothing, there's no historical um, reference point. To bring it back to the Oppenheimer yeah. example, there's no Los Alamos. None. No one there can't coming. be. As far as by projections of how it will play out, there can't be. Okay, so artificial intelligence is a serious concern. Uh, we might circle back around to that one. What are some more that you take seriously? Well, that one, that one takes me to climate change, and the argument is, um, granted, we can't, we don't understand it perfectly, fine. Are we going to have some sort of AI breakout apocalypse scenario where the North Atlantic circulating current just stops working, and flocks of birds all over the place start dying, and ecosystems collapsing, and suddenly have five billion people who are starving, and you know what you're going to do about it. Um, that I don't think will happen, but it might. You know, it might. Do you, I feel I feel very much and very palpably like it's a that 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 whole issue of climate change is like for all our like grass grassroots this and that. It's basically a one on one between like Mother Nature and Elon Musk at this point. Yeah, it's can Elon Musk save the world? Yeah, literally, he, he's um, <laughs> he's in a sense he's in a sense he he's the embodiment of Marduk from the in the old, um, the Illuminatish, the Sumerian mythology, because, you know, what, what's, what's the story? We keep poking the, the great chaos dragon, we keep poking Mother Nature, and, like, eventually she just, like, shrugs us off, like, a, like some, a bug that has settled into her flesh. And so Elon Musk is like, shh, no, we didn't mean it, we didn't mean it. We can be friends, everything, everyone can calm down here. 
So we'll see if he manages it. So, so you see climate change is really... Um, you don't think it's, we will hit that, but if we do, that could be pretty pretty. Well That's what I don't think. I'm saying emotionally I don't think, because I have no reason to believe one way or the other. I don't know what it takes or what signals we're already seeing. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the news has a tone of being alarmist, but I don't know, like, I don't know if that's uh, accurate or not. Well, I suppose, yeah, in, this, in the era where we're sort of um, trendily post-journalistic integrity in some sense, mm-hmm. I, I sort of take your, your standard hesitation. What, what are some other apocalypses that you think viable? I'm interested to hear more of these end-of-time end of scenarios. End of time. End of time. Oh, you don't have to talk about that. Just like huge disruptions to the system, which will fundamentally change our life. Mm-hmm. And we'll look back and recall that period. Uh, all, I think every generation has had a big upheaval, almost everyone in the world. And if not that, I mean, there was some broader context to that period. In America, there was a time of peace, there was a Cold War. And that wasn't just like a war in the background, that was life and death for the entire planet. People were building bunkers in their backyard, as you pointed out. And earlier. fundamentally, um, people at the time didn't think they were going to make it through it. There was a pessimism, which I'm told, settled over America. Okay, so so even so, in a sense, even the so-called peaceful generation had its had its struggle, which was the Cold War of, of constant looming death, this Damoclean sword above the head of everyone. Which is all I'm saying is there's no sort of um, not deriving a pattern from that, more or less than that. Instability seems to be the rule, mm-hmm. and now that we've stressed the environment and uh, weakened the ecosystem, you know, you can expect that chaos is probably going to. Um, affect us too, and it's probably going to be more severe. Okay, uh, so we got artificial intelligence, we got climate change. Uh, turning to political uh, scenarios, how do you see how do you see the current political world order uh, through uh, the Petersonian lens? Um, the camps, I think, now more than ever, people are becoming conscious of the sort of. Uh, cultural divide in America. There are a series of values and most of the belief structures about the world are simply ideas which are fighting and they're being um, and that fighting is going on in a physical sense on Capitol Hill. Republicans versus Democrats. The culture wars. The culture wars. It's an interesting phrase. I hadn't heard it actually declared that uh, so explicitly until quite recently but in a sense there's been this growing sense for uh, for a few years now, that like that there's this ideological war that sits at the heart of, of like, perhaps the American psyche today, and I I wonder what that means. Um, so here's a very direct question: Do you think, do you think the era of uh, the American is over? Do you think that the split between red versus blue is, in some sense, irreconcilable? Irreconcilable? No. There's always a voice of reason that everyone understands, which is a notion that the middle guys just like you and me. The loud voices don't speak for the people. It's just a right. shame that they're only people who are talking. Right. So that that trend always exists, you think? There's still a lot of very civil discourse. I mean, what Charlottesville represents a terrifying change, but even that, if you take it in context, is really nothing. You, the two most extreme elements of American, survive, uh, American society come together and a person was killed regrettably 
but this thing is quite commonplace in the rest of the world. What so, violence and mayhem? Yeah. So considering when you when you think so, if I understand what you're, what you're saying here, it's that given given the context of having a three hundred million person republic, if the worst, very worst element of society can come out and get, and get into a fight, and the people and and one person is killed. I mean, like literal Nazis. The very no. The, the what I'm saying is the very worst case scenario we're getting when Nazis, um, when Nazis march is one person dead. We're very far from Kristallnacht, it seems. Well, there was this, there was this thing. I, I'm I'm never sure anymore because I understand that it's in in certain people's interest to expand like how big a deal something is. So like you know why is it you know there's an availability restrict? Why is it that? We, we feel more afraid of terrorism than swimming pools, even though swimming pools <laughs> kill so many more. And so the traditional answer in social psychology is, um, oh, it's an availability heuristic. You know, it's more available. It's just, it's more salient. Right. Like, right. Okay, that's an answer. So I, I, I um, social psychology has been going through this replication crisis in recent years. Like 50% or something of papers have failed to replicate. <laughs> so I think we're sort of flying, flying blind a bit here, but here's another possible answer to the same question. Uh, what if what if the the relevant um, how would, how would, how would you put this how would you put like the fundamental divide here as one of values no as one of as one of I think beliefs about causal mechanisms in nature so what what would you say is the one side belief about causal mechanisms and the others um, it's like both sides believe what they lack in their environment. Uh, Democrats belong to cities and they long for nature and uh, sort of centralized top-down culture building from the state. Whereas the Republicans, they kind of like have this belief that nature's doing all right on its own. They come from the country. They believe that a person is uh, not a blank slate. And they're a product of their culture. Okay, so how does that, how does that manifest in, in terms of the practical... Uh, differences, the frictions that exist between Republicans and Democrats in day to day. Well, you got two kind. Of, you have, I think, two battles going on. One is the actual cultural va- battle, and ideas talk with each other, and they and they grow or shrink based on the number of proponents. And there's another battle going on, which is uh, the political fight going on in Capitol Hill. And I think like. There, it's not about the strength of an idea which causes it to win. It's just politics. Right. So that there, there, there's an utter divorce, in a sense, between what is what is right and true and noble um, from what is what is expedient and what is effective. What every civilization, I think, attempts to do, or every civilization that ha- that tries to organize itself, they are. What I want to say is I want to, um, I lost the train of thought. Okay, let, let's, let's switch gears for a second. Yeah. Um, you're, you, you've had a, a casual interest in military history for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you've, uh, you're, you're in, your current work is? Civil engineer. Alright, uh, are you allowed to talk about your work? Um, it's involved in building military bases. I'm not going to say more than that in there. Okay, cool. Um, there's a 
so so you've seen you've seen a lot of uh, you've been a student of wool for a long time, and and you you know you're now involved in that engineering side of things. What would you what would you say looking ahead to the next 10, 20, 30, even 50 years of warfare? What what do you see as like a definite trend, and what do you see as like some possible trends? I want to make it clear I'm uh, I'm no expert. Just consider me uh, less eloquent, Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having a conversation with my buddy. In, in, a, in a very profound sense, I think we're all just less eloquent Joe Rogans. Uh, I hope so. I hope that's true. Um, military history. I think missiles are the future. Missiles and robots. Missiles and robots. And you have this trend. you got this trend where power concentrates in the hands of an ever-decreasing number of people. There's this, uh, I can't remember where I heard it, this theory put forth that, uh, lens perhaps, it was gunpowder that brought us democracy. Why? Because it changed the fundamentals of battle. As Robert E. Lee put it, get the firstest with the mostest. I right. think you're familiar with the quote that I get it right. Get the firstest with the mostest. Was it Lee? I thought it was um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a, a different general in the same war. Mm-hmm. Okay. Confederate general, I believe. Sure. Get their first is with the most is, so that's what that's what gunpowder brings. Uh huh. So it's yeah, the most is part. And so you have to arm the people, and then you have all these people waving guns around. So you're supposed to give them rights too. Right. Because they can riot and take you out in a way that they couldn't when it was just peasants first nights. Uh huh. Leveling of the playing field. So what are we seeing now? The opposite, where. Um, People are no longer useful, therefore they don't have to be appeased. It's not like rights are ever given out of benevolence. It's always grudgingly pulled from the hands of the, the ruling class. So it seems from the history of Rome. Right. Do, do, you, do you see this as being another one of those, what would you say, fundamental moments of decision, historically speaking? I think because we have so much power to radically alter the way we live, especially for the worse. I'm saying total apocalypse and everything south of that. But yeah, I mean, every, every hour of every day now is weighted with uh, significance because we don't know the consequences of our action and we have the ability to really, really do some do some harm. Could we, could we change scope massively now? You want to narrow it down? You want to narrow it down. Okay, so... Robots, man. Um, to completely outclass a human soldier, I think you need, like, saying a remote-controlled car about mm -hmm. this big, like the stuff kids play with, with uh, a mounted arm, a gun, and a camera. That can outplay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you like aiming. As well. You can put those on um, little drones, just like what we're doing with the drone. Drones are f like the, the little ones that they give out in kits. Mm -hmm. Those are first generation, right? That's the right flyer compared to what's to come. Once you can, once you can put that that little device you described on a on a, a drone, then uh -huh. it becomes like a, an aerial version of the same. I, I think the one limitation with drones would be payload because it's quite hard to get things to fly, and uh. ammo weighs a lot. Interesting. So heat, heat rays, heat rays. <laughs> oh, I think you a remote control car. You you just send a hundred of those into it. Yeah, a, maybe it weighs like a hundred. Like it's like one of those drones on Mars. 
Oh, right. But okay. smaller, you can fly a plane over, drop like 2,000 of them, they fall down these little parachutes. And um, they land, guns pop out, and they can shoot anyone without missing a single, like 100% of the time. Right. They don't tire, they can carry way more bullets, and they're expendable. How far, do we, how far away do you think we are from this? I don't see why that can't already be built today. I mean, battery technology would be the limiting factor. Um, but even that could be overcome. It's interesting you say it has been overcome. I, I read this, this, this piece about um, the, these people who are warning about killer robots and saying that since there are no treaties on, um, on uh, development of, of robotic, uh, what would you say, warfare, warfare robots, right? Mm -hmm. Since the Osmo principles aren't actually international law, people are developing killer robots, because you have to, because, you know, it's like Scott Alexander says, Moloch strikes again, you have to throw the value under the bus to stay competitive. So, um, so what's happening is, is this, there, there are only a few people with this particular alarm bell, but it's another one, because, mm -hmm. you know, Skynet is bad enough. Like, if we, once we take all power away from humans and give it to robots, militarily speaking, like, that, that in a sense, it's, it's I think what, you're, what you might even be getting at here is it's a form of um, social apocalypse, because... Um, that those rights which were given to the peasants with the musket shall be taken away with the absolutely. With the also, even the conversation had between the people and the state no longer has to be had. What we see from meditations on Moloch is that um, the right conversations never being had. So what I mean, okay, so that 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 represents a sort of terrifying future in a sense where. Um, Human, humans, the human populace, let's say, is utterly politically disenfranchised because it is utterly um, outgunned by uh, a centralized military force. I don't think it will happen entirely like that. I think the dictator will probably be benevolent because they tend to bend in that way. It seems like human nature is thus that um, self-glorification becomes the same thing as glorification of the community. And so it's a horrible thing um, from an ethical perspective to consider a tyrant like Putin to conceive of the state as himself. He right. embodies the state. That's an, a massive enlargement of the ego. Right. Right? And it has this callous quality to it. But, I mean, at least he's going to look after it. This is very interesting to me because I've been, I've been thinking about these sorts of ideas recently. Uh, I, was read, I was reading and reading listening to some podcasts about the origins of fascism for one thing. And there's this idea in fascism that the person, the individual and the state are somehow the same thing. Uh, it's, and, it's, and it's powerful and it's a toxic idea because it ultimately embodies every aspect of the ego of the dictator or the Führer with, with utter, and uh, not just mythical significance, but moral significance so that he has this essential free pass to act however he wants into the world. This is, this is the, the pure manifestation of his, of his personal will. And, you know, we, we saw the sorts of results with that. 1939 to 1945. Well, the question is, yes. um, what happens when this entity does not feel threatened at all? What does he create? Right, so that, I think, that question is answered a lot more by ancient Egypt. Um, so something that's, that's really interesting about Egyptian history is just how big it is. It's very difficult to get, and I think you might have <laughs> heard, you know, the fact that Cleopatra? Uh, she lives closer to, oh, wait, we live, she lives... As close to the pyramids as we live to her. Yeah, close. She lives. She there's less distance between us and Cleopatra 
the difference between Cleopatra and the building what, of the what pyramids. What was she, um, like, uh, 50 BC? Roughly, yeah. She, she was contemporaneous with uh, Julius Caesar. And um, the pyramids were, like, 2,000... What, 250 2100, BC? 2200, 2200, yeah. yeah. 2200 years, yeah. So Cleopatra. It's funny, I was just watching a couple of videos featuring Cleopatra the other day. And I'm happy to say the history documentary has been a lot better. Uh, I feel like very close to her <laughs> right she's now. She's really cool, hey? She's really cool. Like, it doesn't feel like it was 20, uh, 2,050 years ago. It doesn't feel like it was, it was 2,050 years ago? Yeah, it's a very long time. Um, so... So, uh, get it. What, what, what did you feel like with, with this, this Cleopatra documentary? Well, do you have this conception, having been raised Orthodox, right. an Orthodox Jew, that, um, you know, everything that's happening, like 1300 BC, all the way up to 380, and then all that time from then till now, is like, and then some stuff happens. Like, there was a guy called Rashi. He was like a minor character. Like, he's pretty important, but nowhere near Rabban Gamliel. Right. After the Gemara is compiled, it's basically like, yeah, like capture the flag, and we just run with the Talmud for, for 1500 years. It's like, years. after 700 AD, there's all this stuff happening, but it's a subplot. Right. And it's like, yeah, if you ever re read the, you know, you get the expansion pack, the Europe edition. Like, <laughs> there's a few extra campaigns. You know, there's you people doing stuff. skins for the unit. <laughs> Like, instead of, like, the, the standard um, Talmudic villages, like Yavna and its sages, you, you get, like, little shtetls, the uh -huh. icons on the map. I'd play that game. Like, do you get the sense that all the, all the heavy lifting was done? Like, all the big stuff in history was done in the, in the classical period? Which, which I think, in, in, in terms of Judaism, is true. Yes. Like, the, there's nothing like the Book of Prophets and the Talmud being produced. I think we're just treading water for the rest of our history. I, I think I think like in a sense that that was by design. Like once when when Rabbi Yochanan says Yavin and Sages, it's like that that's a last digit, that's a last attempt to play to keep Judaism alive in a in a portable sense. And then like the the the, the Talmudic discussion is in a sense the Jews figuring out how to pack everything they've learned of over, over a thousand years of living with the land into a set of books that embody allows people to embody memories of these times, and then like you know ca carry that for a couple thousand years until we can do it again right. You're saying it evolved. <laughs> it evolved um, self-replication capabilities far in advance of its ability to live a happy life. So actually, it's Darwinian no, traits fought no. with the I think that phenomenological aspect. I don't think it's well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. We, we were perennial outsiders and minorities, yeah. right? We never, for a long time, we never tried to build our own state and have an army. Mm -hmm. And that meant that you know, we'd have it good. We had an economic niche where we were money lenders and all that, making a lot of money. Uh, but every now and then, the state would turn on us and kill a lot of us. Right. A lot of Jews died in, died in bloodshed and misery. Yeah, but that, that's the fundamental covenant at the heart of Judaism. Like Abraham binding Isaac on the mountain is him saying, I'm willing to have my child die for this cause. And in a sense, every time a, a Jew uh, <coughs> circumcises his son, he's making him a target. And that, that, that's built, built into like the, the mythic undertones, I feel. So, I mean, that's, a, that's a, like the veneer they add to the, 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 the um, historical aspect to it. This is a story that plays out again and again. The Jew is a victim by context. Right. And what, that, what that's doing is just wrapping it nicely, but you're still suffering. You know, why didn't you do what the Romans did? What you're saying, you're making the case uh, assimilate and, and prosper? Yeah, assimilate and prosper. So I think, I think there's a sense in which um, 
Judaism is a fundamentally conservative institution which, which looks suspiciously at the natural flow of culture and says, instead, culture should be determined by a series of prophetic visions and um, academic discussions about the legal ramifications of those prophetic visions. And like that's a that's a really strange way to run an organization. <laughs> but uh, have you noticed democracy winning any great battles lately? I have not. Um, and so, for me, it, it, what's interesting is that the Jews have sort of maintained this governmental structure among themselves for 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 the entire duration of the exile. Like when you say they haven't built a state, that's true. But what we have built are communities, and communities like centered around like the shul and the mikvah. Well, they, well they sure, sure, we exist, so we have that going for us. We're at the table to argue for our case. But right? more than that, we exist within a socio-political framework. Oh, fine, so we have a continuity of identity. But what metrics are you going to use to judge the success of this thing? So, like, three come to mind. One is its overall influence on world affairs. Fine, mm. okay, we've done that. Like, you just, it's, like, I'm no longer going to argue that one. But two would be um, survivability. Well, I wouldn't just count that by being at the table because then everyone's equal. I'm saying how far the numbers have extended, the size of the group. That's a very Darwinian way of looking at it. It also seems very apt. And the other one is how comfortable are their lives? Yeah. I, I'm not, not talking about today. So you're, you're saying like Jews for most of history were not particularly comfortable. Where, they were not particularly Barring, barring the beginning of, of uh, like uh, the last... Uh, like the last 1700 years barring, barring like everything from that period onwards we are failing on all those three metrics the last 1700? yes yeah may maybe we are uh, the goo that was excised from Rick <laughs> wow Wait. I hope not how do you, how would, how would you figure that? well I'll tell you what so the, look those are the metrics now we can tamper with those metrics and say whether like it's a good lens or not it just comes to mind so, so you're saying that the Jewish experience... Okay. So well, let me see the metrics again. I'll sure. put it this way. So influence, um, of the spread and comfort. Influence, spread, and comfort. So I, th I, I think we're doing great in all three, to be honest. Um, today. Yeah, it's, it's an argument for it. But overall, I'm like, influence, no. We have a few interesting people who pop up, but like, oh, what are they doing? Rumbum. Rumbum. I felt like it's affirmative action of uh, lawgivers. It's, he has a bust not. on Capitol Hill. Oh, in terms of lawgivers, yeah, but in terms of political players, no. What did he do? It was like, at best he can create a conspiracy theory about him whispering in Salah Hadin's ear. What do we have of his achievements? Okay, but then you see like people like Shmuel Hanagid actually were Fine, but he's players. like some no-name Egyptian gen uh, uh, Moorish general in Spain. And like, cool, he's a talented guy. But he's no Caesar, right? And Rome has like 10 people up there on the same level as Caesar. We have Shmuel Hanagid. Well, I, I was like one of, one of the commanders of yeah, Caesar, yeah. you know? Not even Mark Antony. That's, that's true, okay. <laughs> Jewish generalship during exile was not the no, big Who's influential? I mean, like, like, there are always Jews in the background, like, doing Jewy things. I'm like, oh, like, you're doing really well. Like, I don't know, you seem to have something good going on, but, but you're but not. That's the, that's the tagline for this show. <laughs> Jews in the background doing Jewy things. That, that, that's what we're putting up on the website next to your face. I hope you're okay with that. Oh, no, it's, it's all around. It sounds very anti-Semitic. <laughs> you can meet with your lawyers. It's coming from a place of love. I'm trying to reviv revivify the father, as Peterson would say. Right. Oh, absolutely. I I'm with you on the, on this uh, on this surgery table. I just want to say, like, I want to be sure. So, like, what I do is, I'll make the attack as strong as possible, and I'll let it go, and I'll see if you can argue it down.
I'm, I'm 100% okay still, with it. Still manning it, alright? Let's still man it. Um, what were we saying? So back to why Hitler was right. <laughs> <laughs> all right Never mind, all right. we're cutting the previous right. one. This is the website I now. I'm drafting a contract that you are not allowed to take that out of contact, context to that. <laughs> That's the new tagline for our show. Starts up every episode. No, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, have, a, we'll have a civil conversation about okay, this. Okay. Well, uh, so those three, those three metrics. Yeah. Can you can you like uh, like say they're not good metrics or add better ones? No, I think those are fine. But I think we're we're shining on those. But I think no, like the whole no, point. No, we're not. Percentage okay. of world population failed. Okay, fine. Next influence. I'm saying 300 on. Yeah. What are people taking from the Talmud and applying Wait, to the? Can I make a case? Yeah. Although I agree with you for for most of the, what we'd call exile, most of Gullahs, that we were low in influence, low in, like getting massacred and um, and living quite. Uh, at least physically awful lives. I would say that spiritually we were leading very enriching lives. Um, politically we were punching way above our weight all through our history. And in spread wise, we, we always had far more members than the, the survivors of, let's say, the um, clan of Hammurabi, who today number zero, or <laughs> you know what I mean? The clan of Gilgamesh, who today number zero. Like we outlived. Like it's not, it's not like we, yeah, we weren't, we weren't the big hegemon, we weren't like huge. I, once we were in the exile, but we always had like after sort of after Rome crushes you and obliterates your people, sort of every day after that is a bonus. You know, what I mean? <laughs> so the fact that our population is bigger than zero, well done us. You know what's, you know what's crazy? Every every time I, I read about some battle and some rebellion, I'm like, the fuck are you doing? You know, you've lost. Why are you doing this? Right. And you're gonna like lose really badly. You're gonna hate every second of it. But you know this. I'm pretty sure because you're living it. What are you thinking that makes you think you have a chance or this is better than the alternative? I, I don't really understand the question. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Too many pronouns there. Um, where, uh, you look at, say, the, um, the rebellion. The, the one before that. The one before that. The Great Revolt. The Great Revolt. Oh, this, is this is Rome. This is back up and keep well, Rome. Well, fine, but all of them. Okay, that one cover claim, you're right. That one even more so. That is Rome at its very peak. Yeah. What's its peak considered? Like 70 to 150 or something? I, uh, I don't remember this. That general period. Oh, like, like you saw, sort of after Augustus had already cemented the state, and then you had Traian and Antoninus mm -hmm. and, and Hadrian, this sort of era. Like these guys are throwing around massive armies and they're very well trained. Yeah. Nothing, nothing can stop them at all. Sure. Um, and then Judea's like, yeah, I'll take them on. And we're like, you know, Judea, you're a really small state. Um, like you got some trade routes, but you're not a warrior culture. And also, you haven't really conquered anything. I filled an army in like 400 years. So the fuck are you thinking? They're like, bro, I got this. Then Rome comes in and like, it's like 500 jet leaves. And somehow they lose, <laughs> and they lose again. Eventually, of course, they win, but they got, they got thrown around the room a bit. By, by a little group of, of um, Semitic non-warriors. <laughs> I mean, like, they put up a better fight than Gold did, right? Could I, could I, could I, try, and, could I try and construct this as, a, as something we could, we could sell as like a Hollywood blockbuster? It's like, you imagine a group of yeshiva students as teenagers, right? And then, like, a, a local group of hoodlums moves into the neighborhood. And they're all like big violent guys, so they should shoot into like, like put away their 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 Gavaras and spend like three months in a training montage learning how to fight. Oh, that <laughs> would go down so well. The only Haredi movies out there are about alienation, 
And it's always like, was that anti-Semitic? It was true. On the subject, just while But imagine here. this, we've got no positive Coach Carter for any movies. Yeah, so I'm horribly to, cheesy. We need Coach Carter to pay us. That's um, what we need in our society. Yeah, but like, you saw there's this channel called Invicta, and they take these games, these crazy graphics engines at this time, I think it's Total War, and they make the best war um, historical documentary I've ever seen. I've, I've, I saw a few They're beautiful. Yeah, and I've just seen these yeshivishic kids in their ancient version of the hat and jacket. And they're like, you know, the Romans are coming and they're building a ramp up to the walls. So, what do you think we do? We build uh, a tunnel under the ramp, we fill it with bitumen, and we light it on fire. Yeah. Then the ramp burns down. Brilliant. Back to square one. And all the time, they're sitting there on Uncle Sam's dollar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 100,000 men, you're gonna pay them? Gonna pay them? You know how much it costs to put him out in the field? Like you gotta pay for his equipment, and you gotta pay to make it worthwhile for him to go to the field. These aren't conscripts. Yeah, I mean the you know an army marches on its stomach, and uh, as Game of Thrones teaches us, gold wins war. <laughs> but but this I think feeds into the bigger narrative, which is like I, I think we've done remarkably well considering. So like our diaspora was sort of so first of all for diaspora considering the conditions we had, we did fantastically. But then within the past, uh, I would Did say... Do you want to say the point? With or the era of the American... Can I just jump to the... No, I want, I want to make the point. Fine. I want to make the point. Which is that in the era of the American Jew, I think, like, within the past couple hundred years, you know, by very particular examples, no real sustained anti-Semitism in America. And so um, that's been great. And then also, like, post-Shoah, post like, the world collectively went, oh, is that what we're like? We're so sorry. <laughs> and at least, at least the West was, like, very... But I would say like the, there's a sense in Judaism that the diaspora is always um, a sort of just running downfield, hoping to make that, <laughs> that Hail Mary pass. Yeah. It's like the prophets are like, we've got this whole perfect society figured out, everyone lives in harmony with virtue and nature and God and everything's great. You need, you need, a, you need a state to execute this. All right, oh, here I have to interject. Okay, go for it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here I present to you the yeah. racism of low expectations. You, sir, are an anti-Semite. <laughs> That's forgiven because you're thinking of your, the brothers and sisters of your tribe. Oh, you yeah. are conflating the idea with the people. Fine, all right. Like, you, we've done a well for, we've done all right for ourselves, so you can have some pride there. Like, yeah. you know... I, on the level of the national consciousness, you can have some self-respect. Mm -hmm. But on the level of the idea, we're talking about the brand that has competed with all the other um, emerging cultural entities. We're small fry. No. We're like, we're like Honduras at the UN. That's not true. Ideologically, we're one of the big three civilizations of all time. Today, today fine, I'm saying before that. You know what? Okay. Alright, I think I've I think I've given my piece pretty well. Now I'm gonna join your side. <laughs> wait, wait, just before you join my side, I wanna get one last one last point in. Constantine. Uh, fine. But that's the end of what we did in the beginning of what the Christians did. Right, but the, what's Christianity, man? It's no, I know, I'm saying mind, that's so. why I said like three, four hundred on. I'm okay. differentiating between them. So alright, like, now maybe maybe we're like Shalom, the conservatives of the reform. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what are you saying with, um, what's, what's your thrust now that you're switching sides? How do you um, make the opposite case to what you're Okay, making? so like this, I, was, I kept saying this era you can't include, like here we're doing exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. But this whole like Hitler and Nazi thing, if you recall World War II, <laughs> often you see WW, either there's a number two or II. Yeah. So that's World War II. Maybe you're familiar with it? 
So we'll I have encountered the phenomenon of considered, considered in Hollywood a big deal. Right. Right? Spielberg, and other Barker, he, made, he made like Good Part Last Off at once. There's this movie, uh, there's a bunch of movies no, and like no they talk about it, a great film uh, the context of the, of, the, of the Second World War. Right. Um, yeah, so, that's, so it actually happened. What? Right? World War II. World War II did actually happen. This is a historical event. Um, yeah, not everyone believes that. So about World War II, you denial of phenomenon. <laughs> this far behind the meme, the meme girl. Um, it involves Peppy the Frog somehow. World War Two was that my point? World War Two is a thing. No, you you just decided to do the comedic act the way our, you slowly like. Here's our audience explain. here. We haven't. Anyway, so um, yeah, yeah. So Churchill. Churchill was called us the most formidable race. I don't know verbatim, maybe the world has ever seen, but he called us something like a very formidable race. And I'm like, why? You know, what, what have we got so far? And Hitler, you know, this is an entire state and something capable of running um, an entire country. And they're using that country to dick slap their entire world. And he very nearly won, right? And he certainly thought the Jews had uh, a lot of power to them. Right. Weren't just a corrupting force, but like a force to be reckoned with. Well, it's very interesting you say this because that means that at that point in history, which was the great duel between those two, those two great men and their great civilizations, uh, you know, if I may quote Ollivander, great and terrible, great, terrible, yes. <laughs> um, then then I, I sense that there was a sense, there was a joint um, understanding in the room that the Jews were in the middle of this one. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, like, very directly a fight over the Jews in some sense. Uh-huh. Which, which uh, to me, like, it gives a, f- a bit of waiting to like the old, the old um, prophetic prophecies in the in the uh, in our old writings. Uh-huh. Like at the end of days, great wars will be fought over us. Yeah, the narrative. My understanding of the narrative might be wrong. Is that it's all about the Jews? Germany's whole thing was forget the economy, forget politics, Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's take this. Can I just add the final, like the Please. the crown, the crown jewel to this argument? Um, there is an argument put forth, and I really can't remember who, that a lot of the reason or a substantial element, part of it, why the Balfour Declaration actually happened, hmm. why the Jews were granted a state, was because up in the halls of power, they're like, what if all these conspiracies are true? What if the Jews are really a major player in things? Better have them on our good side. Better be on their good side. It's so interesting that you'll say Dafka at that point in history that that, uh, what would you say, mythology should emerge in England because I remember this quote by um, uh, Otto von Bismarck when he was asked about one of the great European uh, medieval, uh, sorry, European military conferences of the 19th century, not medieval, and um, diplomatic conferences in the 19th century rather, and he was asked afterwards, what, um, who was the, who was the, uh, the center, the center of gravity at the event, or something like that. Who was the, who was the, the guy? And, um, Bismarck replied, uh, in reference to Queen Victoria's own Prime Minister and right-hand man, Benjamin Disraeli, he said, you know the quote? No, no. This, this is a great line. Another the so, guy. Bismarck said, the alte Jude, das ist der man. <laughs> the old Jew, this is the man. So yeah, this understanding of the old. I mean, Bismarck was Bismarck is, is Germany in a sense. Like he was, he is the genius who created the modern country of Germany. And so for him to say, "Oh, the Jew, he is the one running the European theater," like 
that's crazy. Bismarck constructed the European balance of power in advance of World War I. So for him to go look at that, look at this big chessboard he set up, turn to England and say, oh, the Jew, he's the one really running things. And like, you know, all it would take is for a certain young failed Austrian painter to read that line in the wrong <laughs> so, I mean, Well, here's a question. How yeah. accurate do you think is the lens of history or the lens of public perception? Is it really focusing on the absolute top of the pyramid? Like what it says is the top, is that really how it works? Well, I think Can I, like, is that clear to you? Yeah, sure, I get that. I friend has yeah, a question. Try the, go ahead, you um, can do it again. The people really running the show, right. I imagine, aren't the same people who are featured in the spotlight. Um, what would you say to that? Well, here's the, here's the idea that there's someone running the show, right? What that means, if I can reduce it to like simple sort of... Um, I don't want to say Marxist dialectic because that comes with a whole lot of baggage. Let's say Game of Thrones dialectic, right? Actually, look at where power is and how it's being projected. I don't think, like, Andrew Carnegie, I think his um, personal fortune at his peak, the railroad baron, the second wealthiest man in history, at his peak, he was personally something like, something between 0.5 to 1.5 percentage points of the American economy, him personally, right? That, and that's huge, right? That's, that's colossal. That's bigger than anything we have now. Also note that it's much smaller than, like, let's say, the average king or, or Caesar. Or, so the, the idea, like, the era of um, one man in, uh, having immense power over the state of affairs of the world is arguably over, at least for now. Um, I can certainly see situations arising where, um, where the heads of the, what, what, you know, what Alexander refers to in, in his makes reference to in his, in his book Unsung is um, the theonomics. Mm -hmm. Look at the big eight tech giants which are worth billions of dollars each and always uh, becoming worth more, right? The ones who are winning in every field that they fight. I, I wonder to what extent like the, the, man who run, the men who run those companies um, could become that in the future. But as you pointed out actually off, off, um, off my earlier, there, there's actually a great danger inherent here. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that again a bit. Yeah, yeah, you get the concentration of power in the hands of a decreasing number of people. So what was the shocking fact you had about uh, Jeff Bezos this morning? Jeff Bezos? Yeah, it was this realization that um, I stopped paying attention to the world, or I stopped, as I put it, I stopped learning and started knowing things at the time where Bill Gates ceased to be the world's richest man. I found out like two days ago that, I couldn't even say, I keep forgetting his name, is it Jeff or George? Jeff. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. So for you, this was a canary in the, canary in the mines in a sense that like, you didn't even know since Bill Gates who the richest man has been? I'm not paying attention, yeah. Right. Why does that, why does that feel like it's, that's the important thing to be paying attention to? Well, it seems like it's an important thing to know. It's a mark of general knowledge. It's more a sense. As a kid, I had no random facts like this. Like, kind of, you feel like it's a point where it helps you feel the shape of society. Well, yeah, in a, sense, in a sense, if you think of society as like an elaborate um, arcade game with points being represented as money, then I guess that guy does have the high score. Well, um, like imagine society has this weird conceptual shape like a shell and you're a blind man filling it out. Right. One of the projections is the richest man in America. Correct. That, that's a beautiful way of saying it. I, I agree entirely. Um, I guess, but it's also important. The richest man wealth, in America or the world? Or the, but, okay, the world. The world is more accurate. Um, his wealth relative to the GDP of America is also important. Do you Apparently know his worth... Is? Could we, uh... Josh, could we Google that? I'm on it. I'm, I think it's 80 billion. 80 billion? Yeah. 
She's personal wealth. Yeah, it's just this behemoth that's, it's, um, it's not just devouring everything in a business sense, it's also producing uh, the terrain environment. It's producing the world of tomorrow where people are going to be less and less useful. I remember um, reading recently in the, uh, I hear we got this from Josh, Jeffrey Preston Bezos is an American technology and retail entrepreneur, da, da, da. net worth $94.8 billion Whoa. USD. Bill Gates was worth 30 and that was the peak. He was the richest man that ever, richest private citizen that ever lived. Jesus, the guy looks like Lex Luthor. Kicking this guy in the nuts. Wow. Yes, the richest man in the world should be a player. But see, here's the thing as well, like, that what, you know what's really terrifying? Is that that hundred billion is, is almost irrelevant because that's not Amazon, that's his personal wealth. What's he going to do with that? I don't know, oh, you're right. Chats and palaces, not going to affect the world. Here's what's going to affect the world. Apparently, Amazon is looking right now for a place to put its new headquarters. Seattle is getting a bit too, uh, what would you say, a bit too small, but too, um, it, it kind of reminds me of, in, in some perverse way of um, Glenwood Springs. <laughs> 5,000 millionaires will move there overnight. How many janitors do you think that place needs? I don't think it's not 5,000. No, I'm saying 5,000 is the expected, I think, the expected number of new number jobs. Of work, new jobs Still, a place like that, like, if their headquarters is there, maybe that's the first step for it to become, like, the next trading hub. So this is, this is what I'm saying, like, that, that just to explain for the people who aren't um, on, in on this, that, that Amazon's looking for a new headquarters. Seattle isn't, is, like, they want a new headquarters instead of Seattle, mm -hmm. and the, the sort of read between the lines implicature, at least according to one thing piece I encountered, was that... Uh, Amazon is saying to Seattle, like, we don't like how much you tax us. We don't like how many, how many regulations oh, you see. have. We're leaving. Yeah. And, you know, we can get anyone we want. And this sort of storm out. And then, like, you get this, this really perverse scene where you have, like, all the mayors of um, different, different, uh, uh, what would you say, different, different towns and mm -hmm. like, just, just cities just, like, um, essentially begging Amazon on tape to, to come settle in their towns. So, so this is where the free market fails? Well, this is where the free market, I think, doesn't fail. It reaches its natural conclusion. I think we're coming to the end of what we think of as a free market. Oh, it's so you're saying, you're saying the system is inherently unstable. It tends towards monopoly, and thus it destroys itself. Well, I don't know if it's going to destroy itself. I, I can easily see a future where there are, like, you know, the, the, sort of like in Game of Thrones, if you look at the various players in the capital, you can think of... Like one of the one of the uh, scenarios that I could see, just just looking at the uh, say, voting patterns on a map, is right. You get this a lot of red state voting in the middle of America, and then mm -hmm. you get blues along the coast. And so you could see in any in any like God forbid, any failure of the American political system, um, the sort of if if it were divided, if it were divided along ideological lines, you might get like this pocket up in the northeast corner, like Harvard and. Maybe New York, not sure, because the finance is also that's its own thing. But um, Washington, we're basically assuming Washington were red state, like it is now, in a sense, because like uh, there's a sort of a broad Republican base for Trump. Um, then, the, then the Rust Belt, the the, um, the red states, the economically impoverished and, and weapon heavy, would be say like one team. And then the blue states, pr primarily the western blue states, the Californian. What, you know, what, what's, what's still brazenly called the California Republic, you know? Mm -hmm. There are a few states in America that never really gave up on being their own independent <laughs> fiefdoms, and they let you know that up front. It's like, it's a way of saying, like, I'm slightly better than you, because I'm not really a state, I'm actually a kingdom. Right. Like, that's a rung above. So, so what you're looking at, I think, like, the, you know, in a failure mode in America, martial law is declared, 
let's say that the president can't project force to California, what kind of government emerges there? And something I think that's very interesting is like the possibility of uh, something like what we saw in season two of Game of Thrones at Carth, sort of the Spice King and his and you know the various merchant kings. Because between Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, mm-hmm. the you know Larry Page, the Google Boys, and so on, like you take the big eight tech companies and the he- their heads. Um, that's most. That's a huge chunk of the world's wealth, right there in that room. Oh yeah, yeah. So what could they do? And, and well, I they... think the share of the world's wealth is only going to increase. It's going to become a point where you have uh, a lot of people holding a small number individually of the world's wealth. Yeah. And then it's going to it's going to turn out to be sorry. And then that number is going to change. It's going to be a small number of individuals holding a vast proportion of the world's wealth. That right. number, that proportion is going to skyrocket. And it's going to be the point where technology runs everything. If you look at the biggest companies on the stock exchange right now, or in America, it's like Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, like five of the top eight, they're all internet companies. Right. And uh, soon, like more and more, like self-driving cars, I'll get in on that game. The, the, the 3D line, printing. Yeah, the, the, the line is um, software eats the world. And I think one level up, um, software corporations eat smaller corporations. Like Facebook loves to buy and close, and what that means is it's sort of staking out a hegemonic um, sort of territory in, in, in sort of conceptual space. I, you, it's very easy to imagine a world entirely um, filled with these eight corporations, in fact. Like, you think of Facebook, the extent to which, I mean, you, you know, people argue about whether there are signs now that it's sort of reaching its natural peak and sort of declining a bit, or if this is just this bump and it's going to surge again. And I can see both of those options being going, going, going through, but... Assuming it defends its hegemony and expands it, like the extent to which Facebook's um, software is built to keep you on Facebook, mm-hmm. and the extent to which they can actually bolster that with genuine service as technology improves. Like there are a lot of engineers actually building more value into Facebook, so they offer it. Well, they can very better. easily offer you a lot of value. Um, and crucially, they have the best minds of our generation working on that. Like, what a fucking schuss it is to work for Facebook or Google. Yeah. You are, you kick the shit of a doctor or a lawyer. It's very respectful. It's like my daughter married one of those. Programmer. A programmer at yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Um, like the, like uh, social approval, because that's what Facebook is. Um, econ- like sales. What else? Memes. They're hitting everything a person needs from the realm of culture they can give you. Like they're offering financial services in terms of trading or listings. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, there are a lot of levers. What I'm saying is, they have a lot of levers, and they can manipulate it to an extent, right? Because there's so much information on you, right? Where they can both satisfy your needs while manipulating you for their own ends. And the point end of the spear, like how many hours a day does do you think the average person spends on Facebook now? Like the average Westerner, say. I don't know. It used to be like what, like an hour or something. I had I had two to four hours. Wow. Yeah. It, okay. I don't know if that's good. That's hey, fucked. Josh, can you Google that out? How much? What's the average Facebook use? Um, so, so there's this idea where so we're inadvertently destroying our world not for any great purpose just because the way our economy and and, and, um, political structures are built is that we can't suffer a single back step everything's built on progress and growth yeah well that's 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 where everyone had it so once i think uh with self-driving cars and smart everything all managed by uh, these powerful analytics companies which is essentially what they are um, then life is going to get a lot better, right? Things will become a lot more efficient. 
well, life will get a lot better technologically. It's not obvious. Oh, so let me finish my point. Sure, what I'm saying please. is, once comfort increases, yeah. there should, there's probably a rule for this, so there should be. Once a level of comfort has increased, society will never give it up without a fight. Like, politically speaking, that's a no-go. Well, that, so the question I think we, we, that we touched on within the military part of this conversation is, uh, you know, right now, let's say, like people, there are a lot of people in, in um, let's say, the left-hand side of, of uh, discourse and, and politics who, who make the claim quite seriously that, that we're on the edge of all sorts of political catastrophes in America and that the, the, the democracy herself is under threat. And I sort of, I, I, don't, I don't know whether I buy into, or the extent which I buy into this sort of thing, but like I can sort of see when um, the president actually made a statement like uh, um, one, uh, one like what did he say? Like the, the the Bill of Rights, you know, it's an old document and it may have to go or something. <laughs> I was like, are you crazy? That's like the value that America's founded on. But he said it and, and you know, it passed through. And like I don't know that it, it made any traction, but like the fact that you can say something like that and not be impeached says a certain something about the nature of discourse in our country. Uh-huh. Our country, I'm Australian. <laughs> it's like Australia living in Israel, our country. I'm sheltered by the Pacific. You know, it reminds me there's this great there's this great picture of um uh, North Korea's nuclear missile test, mm-hmm. which just shows the, le- the distance of the ICBM and how far across the Pacific that gets towards America. And it's like a sixth of the Pacific, <laughs> that's its range. And then you have um, someone added a little picture of uh, Mr. Meeseeks from Rick and Morty in the corner, and he's saying, Ooh, he's trying! <laughs> okay, according to data from Nielsen, Americans spend an average of 10 hours and 39 minutes consuming media across their devices. So just to and start with period? that, that's, um, I think, uh, that's per day. 10 every hours. Day, every day, we, apes, are spending 11 hours on the bright lights on a, on a, on a glass screen. Um, as long as media encompasses more than just social media, then fucking likely possible. Watch. Uh, this is, the, the article goes on, this is Nielsen stuff. Specifically, five hours per day are spent on mobile devices. You spend five hours on, a, on your, your phone every day. That's an average. What kind Do you? Is, no, we're not good examples I, here. I, I, most, I, I, okay, if people are in front of a screen, then sure. Is that most people? Because I know all the tradies aren't. I wouldn't be surprised though, like three hours. Well, the, that's, I think they're, the, they're much dragging down the actual average here. They, they say the current average amount of time spent on Facebook is 35 minutes per day. And I think that's probably dragged down by tradies and parents. I think like the average college kid. It's, but it's not. It's not Imgur or Reddit. It's not. Inter- it's not a website which generates so much content. But Facebook. Actually, yeah. I mean, how long? Oh, I don't know. It's possible. A lot of this. If this is actually a, a, a poll across all users, I think it's like it's really intense. Actually, no. I mean, sure. Facebook offers you everything. I don't know what different people are using it for. Like, I know that. People just five years younger than me in arts as well, so that's different. Use Facebook in a completely different way. Yeah, I think a lot of the dominance hierarchy of a, of a standard liberal arts university, I think, is now outsourced to Facebook and played out on Facebook. Like, I remember when I was at University of Sydney, it was like election time, everyone changed their Facebook pictures to like the different election campaigns and like fought these public wars there, and that became a sort of uh, an adjunct. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't, let's say, conceive of fighting a political campaign at the university without a concomitant um, Facebook campaign and that says to me that Facebook was a, an enduring feature of the battlefield so so like Facebook is already playing like so many different roles What was that fact we just pulled up? According to Comscore Facebook is accessed at an average of 8 times per day followed by Instagram 6, Twitter 5 and Facebook Messenger 3 
So people may not spend as much time on Facebook as they used to. They do tend to check it pretty frequently. The age of like the Facebook binge perhaps is over, but the age of Facebook constantly entering your life and saying hi has only uh -huh. just begun. A friend, what's his name, Shmuel something, he said, he gave a very good reason for getting off Facebook, the best one yet. Um, you're standing in line at the checkout, you know, he looks at his phone. You know what he missed right then? Time to reflect. You told me this several months ago. Yeah. Long before, you, you, you hadn't met Shmuel then. Not this one, a different guy. From He went to Gush, actually, like me. Ah, different From America, visiting. So, yeah, just that period of time in your day to reflect. Like, very mild meditation. Yeah. I spent time reflecting on what I, on what I did that day, things I did right, things I did wrong. I did it yesterday, and um, I was struck by how much you can get through. It's really amazing. So, a lot of us, it struck me that how much of life is spent waiting. You can imagine being friends with you through the years. Oh, I'm so sorry. Up. No, don't worry. <laughs> um, so for, for those listening at home, we've known each other since we were, well, how, how old are you? And somewhere around the age of five. Somewhere around the age of five. Um, and that, but you can say that if I knew you at five in the same community, I probably knew you at three and before that. Well, yeah. We, I, think, I think at your birth, um, the, the, you were actually uh, lifted by Dr. Bloom Oliver Shalom above the crowd and we all knelt. Um, while Elton John I actually, in the yeah, I recall that. You were wearing a blue shirt. Do you remember that? Mm. Yeah. Nice shirt. You still have it? Yeah, my mom, my mom thought it was cute for, for, to dress like me and my uh, older brother and older sister in the same clothes that day. It was terrible. Very terrible. economical. Well, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I was sort of um, upset about making a bad impression. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for those listening at home, um, we've known each other for about 20 years and I have not generally been a very prompt man, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, I think there are pictures of you at my option-ish. Really? Yeah. I'd love to see them. Fuck, that's a different time. Are, is, is, are there any of me like putting water on your, on your ankles? Because those are significant. No, I don't think they let you near me. I was kind of the star of the show. Um, as, as the, what is the quote for the New Testament? One will follow me whose sandals straps, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. But um, but but we have you spend a lot of time waiting for me, and I remember there was actually this discussion we had once um in my in uh my backyard yeah when um, I was hanging out laundry. <laughs> um, that that was real. That was. I real. thought I dreamt that. No, no. I lived an entire life. I had a wife. I had children. <laughs> I had children. <laughs> You're saying all of that was just one session of you doing your laundry? It was. Every time I did my laundry was the other trip. So first of all, I think you've got to, you've got to sort of paint this scene, which is like um, my, my grandfather, uh, Yitzchak Ezra Cohen Ben Salcham, which I'm not really Yitzchak Ezra Cohen Ben, sorry, Yechetzkel Chai Cohen Ben Yitzchak Ezra Cohen. He, he uh, bought a place in Dover Heights, so the nice area, um, back, you know, like just after the war when people were still sort of... Can I interject and say what people in Australia call the nice area? So that's pretty nice. What, what do you mean? What do they call uh, Australia's it? gorgeous, and that's a nice part of Australia. Oh, yeah, Australia's, Australia, I, I, um, I like to say Australia's uh, got that, that unique combination of good governance and good weather, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Um, and, and so my grandfather bought in this area when it was still um, quite relatively cheap and there was a Jewish community growing there and, and then it became the wealthiest suburb I think in all of Australia, is that right? Our Prime Minister comes from there. The Prime Minister comes from there. I think we'll oh, Vaucluse, one over. Oh yeah, yeah. so, so Dover Heights, Vaucluse, like that, those two are the top. 
um, beautiful view of the city, just gorgeous place. So I was in this back, the big backyard, um, and and we like it was a simple house, but it was had like good property. You know, it was like it was a very very well put together house. Yeah, like one story only, like compared yeah. to the mansions on every side. Wait, 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 just get to the punchline. Point is, it was like a nice. The backyard was an epic adventure. You sort of went up this path. Oh yeah, there was like an extra path, then like a step. Oh, it's a good time from that house. So, so for me, putting out laundry was always like this Zen process, and I always did it really slowly and contemplatively, and that pissed you off no way. I had no, no, I was just rolling with it. I think maybe when I got used to it, I resigned myself to it. No, 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 don't. <laughs> don't I hope you're not feeling um, anxious about all those times. I had a great time. It I'm, not, to I'm mind not anxious is... about it. What I'm, what I'm just saying is like there's a sort of philosophical difference here about the fa- between Facebook and not Facebook. Oh yeah, can I tell you like? <laughs> how I pictured you moving. You were like that old Chinese guy in the park in the robes doing Tai Chi. That perfect oneness with the action you were performing. Yeah, I think I, I think I may have actually gotten that, that pacing from that period of my life when I was sort of drifting like in between, you know, jobs, in between um, studies. And so I thought like what I'll do is I'll try and uh, learn the ancient Kung Fu wisdoms and then become like a prize fighter in UFC for a hot second. That was like my life ambition. Um, if I may interject, after work I've taken to napping. Yeah. But once you, once you lie down, especially that hour, you don't always wake up with energy. So like sometimes you just want to sit and, and keep watching YouTube. So what I start doing is I put on uh, like some Kung Fu clips, just people fighting. Oh, that must feel amazing. I watch it and I'm like, fuck yeah! Jump out of bed. That's that's a really good idea. Could you could you send me some trace ones if you? Yeah yeah yeah. Cool. I'm just like <laughs> Maybe we'll I'm like the links. I'm trying I'm just trying to find that way to speak directly with my unconscious. I was thinking of this um, line from Pierre Carvus, which says the um what is it the chapters of the fathers, the sort of the, the big book of, of Jewish advice from all the sages, who inherited from Moses and passed it passed on down the men of the great assembly, and um, so it's there's this line make your house a meeting place for sages. So I have, I know like a lot of rabbis who are just cool guys who are right, they do their thing. Impossible to get them into a house together at the same time, but I figure I could probably use my birthday as an excuse. So I managed to gather together a few of like, the, really the people that I consider like the great halakhic minds that I've encountered. And um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense in which like, um, like I really felt like there was, a, there was a gathering of wise men of Israel there. And, and in a sense like this is... Um, this is how Nesetha Sanhedrin begins, right? It's like, Dine Mamanus Bishlesha. Like, if you have a financial dispute, mm-hmm. you get three wise men together in a room and you figure it out. <laughs> That's how government works for the Jews, you know? The, 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 the tractate of the Gemara that's about government structure, it begins by saying you get three wise men, you know what they're doing, in a room, and you arbitrate. Ooh, that's a good system. You know, my, my stepbrother, who remain nameless, is <laughs> um, starting, to, starting to gather a following. Like, there are people that come to him for advice. So you have this interesting situation. One of the strange byproducts of a halacha-based society is that um, smart people with, as they say in Yiddish, ass flesh, the ability to sit for a long time. What is Yiddish? Zitfleisch. Zitfleisch. I love that. Um, they rise to the top. Zit means tuchus, like means means ass. And flesh means flesh. Wow, ass flesh. If you have ass flesh, you're able to just sit down, you rise to the top. Yeah, it's, it's sort of conscientiousness, like, openness in the canoe model. How, how I see the conscientiousness, obviously, but where's the openness? Interested in ideas. Oh, that's interesting. Because uh, they're on the forefront of halakha, so they find they have to learn it. 
Uh, the Gemara is quite friendly to open people. And, and then, really, and then um, you have to contemplate these halacha questions. It, it's interesting you say this. There's this, um, there's this fantastic joke uh, that's on the back of The Day God Laughed by Haim Maccabee. And uh, I just want to read this joke. Uh, there's a story about a Shiva student who was persuaded one day to take a rest from his Talmud studies and visit the countryside. As he walked through a farmyard, he saw a strange little animal and asked, What is that? He was told that it was a hen. Ah! He cried in mystic delight. It is the holy Tarnagalus from the Talmud. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you went to um, Gushi Shiva mm-hmm. for how long? One year. And, and so you're very familiar with the sort of, um, at least at least some part of the kaleidoscope that produces this this kind of joke. <laughs> yeah, Could I know. You know, if, if I was if I were Haredi, mm. I would appreciate that much much more. There was a sort of salt of the earth and Western liberal aspect to Gush, which made us more involved with the world. Ah, interesting. So I, I suppose I was I was. Uh, Raising a couple of times. Yeah, that, that probably that. hits you on a deeply primal level. Like, oh, yeah. I understand this. Yeah, so this archetype. That, that, that's what happens when, um, for me, for me, like the Hasidic way that I grew up with, like it was, it's, it's like a sort of vanguard Hasidism, right? Like that's what it's designed to be. So, um, uh, I guess we could, we could. Uh, this is a, this is a bit of a side, side conversation. The whole um, Chabad as, as modern Hasidic thought. But but just to um, to get to the to the to Judaism as a as a sort of governmental system, um, the fact that we we reward people who have an openness uh, you said an openness on the Kunu model right, which is the big personality big five. Uh, could you explain basically what that personality big five model is? Oh, so I'll break it down. Um, so you got this acronym Kanu, C A N O E. C stands for, these five together are the basic spectrums by which people's personalities tend to clump. They're like five attributes that explain a lot about people. I mean, people are complicated, there's lots to them, but these five are a useful tool. And something, something statistically valid, which apparently is important. C, C is for conscientiousness. And that's how orderly you are and how, how good you are at working. You've got A for agreeableness, which is basically if you're a nice guy or not. N for neuroticism, how nervous you are. O for openness, which is how interested you are in new ideas and aesthetics. And E is extroversion, which is how much you like being around people. Okay, so, so let's just um, uh, give a, a quick example. So someone who's conscientious, um, just uh, without, without breaking them down too much into the mm-hmm. subcomponents, just like describe a conscientious trait, something like you can look at and say, oh, that's, that person is conscientious. Someone who sits down at the desk and they work hard and they're, they're sh- like, their clothes are clean and tucked in, everything's where it's supposed to be and it's orderly. What does a bedroom look like? The bedroom's clean and the bed is made. Um, <laughs> hey, good on you. <laughs> things, there's a sort of, uh, things are in the conceptual categories. Right. Like the book, the bookshelf's probably ordered in like along some certain logic. Right. So that's some conscientious, agreeable. What would you say is a defining um, feature, something um, agreeable, or, or or an example of someone who's agreeable, plain to type, plain to the. They're the person who would view their life through the frame of relationships. It's the nurturing type. In an interaction, they're probably they're, they're focused on um, responding to the other person. 
right? Moving so. with that sort of flow. That's high agreeableness. But this is low agreeableness is the other end where they view themselves as the locus of the relationship. So what would be something that someone with low agreeableness might do? Um, that might be difficult to work with. Uh, when they negotiate, they'll try and take as much as they can for themselves and be less accommodating. Like a, a disagreeable person, um, yeah, they might take the last, last cookie without offering it. So what would, um, some of these traits seem to have a, a substantial, like be very clearly positive and some very clearly negative and in some sense of working towards human flourishing. Um, this disagreeableness is a bit of a tricky one because from what you're describing it sounds like a, something of a negative trait, but it has uh, positive manifestations too. Certainly. Um, any trait in excess starts to become a vice. Uh, the disagreeable one's easy to argue. The agreeable side, it's essentially where you don't do what's harsh when necessary, um, or you don't negotiate for yourself, as in you can become a bit of a doormat because you're so concerned about the other person. Right. I remember something... Um, uh, it's with the disagreeable part where it's necessary. Sure. It's, uh, yeah. Um, this dynamic pops up everywhere, the father and the mother, uh, Chesed and Vura. You have to be harsh. There are many times you have to be harsh. Okay. So, so that, that harshness is, uh, that uh, sort of corresponds to the Kabbalistic idea of Kavura, strength. Harsh doesn't really uh, encapsulate it. Um, you have to... The world is going to be... Oh, sorry. I'm going to have to cut that part. Um, let, let, let's move on to something else. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell uh, writes that um, uh, something about that successful people, like uh, entrepreneurs who really change the landscape of the, of the local environment um, and are extremely successful in their, in their careers, uh, they tend to be a certain sort of person, and that sort of person tends to be conscientious, uh, tends to be open to new ideas, tends to be extroverted, uh, tends to be low in neuroticism. I think I'm getting all these traits right. And the big twist is tends to be disagreeable. Yes. Um, and uh, the, the quote that that will, I'm going to butcher it probably, but the quote that that will use to saying this is um, something like the... Uh, the agreeable man shapes himself to fit the world. Mm -hmm. The disagreeable man insists on um, uh, shaping the world to suit himself. Thus, all progress depends upon the disagreeable man. <laughs> that resonates. Um, uh, let me phrase it like an engineer. When you're leading, when you're involved in an organization on a leadership level, you have to create an incentive landscape so people will move as one to achieve the goal. Yes. And part of, a big part of that incentive landscape is you. You have to be willing to motivate them by making it more comfortable to work than to not work. Right. And there, there are two elements of that. There's like fulfillment, but there's also enforcement of the, of the laws which contain them. And you've got to be disagreeable. There's no two ways around that. You've got to be willing or enable to put someone down it's interesting you, you said this, you're talking but, about... So I want to just add to that. Sure. Um, having the capability is really all you need. As, so this, this comes back to that, uh, the idea that we've discussed uh, from Peterson, which is um, the ideal is not to be, uh, what would you say, declawed. The ideal is something more akin to um, the, the, the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast. You want to be a monster, but you want to be uh, in control. 
don't have the ability to, to exile power and then not use it. And there's an old joke about the, um, the gentleman is a man who knows how to play the bagpipes but doesn't. So I guess that, <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> I can, I can easily control this entire room's audio environment. Uh, Watch me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a time for bagpipes. There's a time for bagpipes. Um, shout out to Bill, though. Uh, I, hope, I hope you're going to get some, some air into the old gals. Can we get a, um, an impersonation of Bill for the audience? <laughs> so, um, Bill's his friend to my grandfather, who uh, is from small town Scotland, the old small town Scotland. And when I was in high school, uh, I had a project I had to interview someone. So I figured, yeah, I'll go interview this guy. He's Scottish, he's fine, he's interesting. And so I sat and did like a 40-minute interview with him. Really, really great interview, like really, really powerful stuff. And I took it home on you know, one of those cassette tapes and put in that tape recorder. and sat on the computer and pressed play and started typing. Uh, except I wasn't that fast at typing. And... Um, and it's like, and he wasn't always so clear with his like thick Scottish accent, and so I ended up having to like rewind and play and rewind and play and rewind and play. So I ended up listening to this Scotsman talk into my ear for hours. Um, there were no earphones in that at that time, which my mother points out often with uh, a sense of a sense of the deep, the deep, the deep, uh, the deep love with which she raised me. Like ah, we put up with all sorts. So. Um, we got we got through to that. God bless it. We got we got through to. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. What are you holding? Do the goddamn impersonation. Oh, Bill. Bill. Right. So no. So like the thing you have to understand, right, about is if you're a man from from small town Scotland, the entire uh, what would you say topography of reality is different, and so. You can think of it this way, like, we're 30 miles west of Edinburgh, right? I, thought, I don't know if it's west, we're 30 miles outside of Edinburgh. And so, the nearest man, you know, there's a policeman in the next town, and he comes through on a black bicycle, except if it's an emergency, he comes through on a red bicycle. <laughs> and so, you know, you just have a few houses, we grow potatoes in the back. And, and like, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, beautiful, fascinating anthropological unfolding when this guy talks. That, that, that's the Bill McQueen accent. Probably shouldn't say his real name on, on television without uh, checking, so let's check before. What was that? There. Will McFade? Um, you know, this is like the Rick and Morty of Morty's mind blowers. <laughs> so Rick and Morty, it's like cutting these, we can just erase this part of the conversation. I don't know that we will, we'll probably just ask can you. We, about, yeah. Can we um, erase that part of the conversation and jump to this part with no context? I'm uh, basically saying, I'm like, glad I erased that part. That was uh, some pretty revealing information. Yes, it was. Real shame. Would have made a great show. <clears throat> yeah, I sure remember those people in the alternate dimension where you know we had the cojones to not censor <laughs> any of this stuff. I mean, do they have like Emmys for uh, information which is both entertaining, well delivered, and can bring down a government? Um, <laughs> I hope so. I sure hope so. So let let's move on the subject of bring down governments. Let's move to um, what I feel with from my extremely narrow lens. Uh, what was for me at least with um, the television event of the year? I'm speaking, of course, of Rick and Morty season three, episode seven, Tales from the Citadel, uh, also known as the Rick Lantis something. It has an actual title, the Rick Lantis. You remember it, Josh? Can you, can you Google that up? I just uh, the, the, the seventh episode of season three, 
tell us from the Citadel, what was your, what were your, what was your immediate reaction to watching that? Um, see, this is the issue. I was raised to such a level of consciousness. I experienced emotions that I think only about seven people in history have ever manifest. The issue with that is that it's very, very difficult for me now in my current state to even explain with mere language what that was like. Alright, well, look, this is uh, the Rick Lantis mix-up is the name of the episode, and so let's say we're going to talk about that for about another 15 minutes. So um, if, you're, if you're listening along and you're, you either haven't uh, seen the season of Rick and Morty or you know, you're not interested in that sort of discussion. Or it's time minutes. for my earth. Or it's time for my earth, which, you know, uh, all around the world, uh, once per day it is. So you can skip ahead 15 minutes or so. Um, but Tales from the Citadel, I, as you said, it, was, it, it provokes depth. It provokes a new sort of level of experience. Um, I, I just want at this point float an idea. Sure. We talked about it before. Sure. Kickstarter for Jordan Peterson to watch all of Rick and Morty um, and televise it. Yeah, I think we can put that in the, in, the, in the link at the bottom of this episode. Could someone make that happen? Yeah, um, uh, Jordan Peterson live commenting on Rick and Morty as he watches it. That's all. Just, just, just watch it all together as one. I, I, I really feel like that would be, in a sense, like the, um, the, uh, the zeitgeist scene of our day, right? Like, in a sense of. Uh, Jawaharlal, I remember um, Jawaharlal Pandit Nehru in uh, in India in 1947. This is the first prime minister of India. Yeah, the, he was the uh, the sort of understudy of, of um, the great soul Mahatma Mohandas Gandhi, and so he in in, uh, in Babu, the father of the nation, like they made India together, and Gandhi was assassinated, and so Nehru stepped into that place, and in 1947 he gave this address in um, Indian Parliament. It's such a gorgeous line. I think it doesn't get enough air. He said, um, uh, this is in his uh, famous Tryst with Destiny, inaugural address, the first, the first Prime Minister of a new India. And he says, um, a moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old into the new, when an age ends, when the soul of a nation, long suppressed, finds utterance. And I think uh, Nehru, you know, he's from an earlier time, he's from the time of the radio, where what you do is you get up on the radio and you give a talk. And I think, like, we're from the internet, YouTube, live comments, super fast, want it now, culture war, <laughs> um, cartoon, uh, 60 iterations off the finite curve generation. And so what we want is we want Jordan Peterson watching Rick and Morty. Like that's, that's the sort of, um, that's the uh, Byzantine chariot race of our day. Oh, hells yeah. That's the Gutenberg printing press. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's the Oracle of Delphi. So let's talk about an entire, let's, let's entirely switch gears. Um, we're, we're both at least casually interested in, in zombie planning. The, the notion of what to do in a world where it falls apart. I'd like to say I do my bit as a responsible citizen. What is that bit? Well, practically speaking, one could describe it as absolutely nothing, but uh, let's talk about the idea. Oh, um, well, I think, I think as a responsible citizen you're supposed to do absolutely nothing. Like, 
built into a lot of, um, uh, at least American governmental zombie plans, I understand it, is like, don't panic the populace unnecessarily. <laughs> like, if, you know, as, as uh, Morty points out this season, lambs to the cosmic slaughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I conceive of it is that um, apocalypse happens, 90% of us are gone. And like, what we want ideally to happen is the 90% die without destroying what remains to the final 10% when they fight over it. Mm. And I don't like my odds, right? Right now I'm not so well positioned to be in that 10% unless by blind luck after a few seasons of Mad Max. Right. And so where I plan to be is if not in like the Australian theater of the zombie apocalypse where everything just continues as normal. Right. I'm be right under the first nuke that falls. Where, where do you think that'll be? Oh, where do you think that'll be? Um, I think New York. The very first one. Who knows? Who knows? Well, maybe it's Seoul. Well, I, I could propose that from where... Yeah, Seoul could easily be Seoul. Jeez, the way that theater progresses. We're, uh, we're, we're presupposing that the Mad Doctrine equally applies to North Korea. And it's a fairly... It's an assumption that I support, but we always have to entertain the notion, what if we're not? Or what if there's a mistake? So it's a hot border. It's a very hot border, and, and you can easily see on a personal level, I mean, to, to some extent, like, when a man is placed uh, with his back against the wall in a situation like, um, uh, like inevitably, uh, the young Kim would in, in, a, in a really final Korean showdown, he sort of has to um, make a fundamental decision, which isn't about politics, it's about character. And w- do, do I think that the current um, uh, dear, glorious, or whatever adjective leader of North Korea might be resentful enough to say that these people who always fought him and who you know, who turned a local family feud, let's say, into, into an international affair and he brought the Emperor of Rome crashing through our walls. Do we want to just give them the ultimate uh, hell with you and, and wipe them out? I don't know. I, I don't know which way he'd make that choice. If you have any well, I can tell you one thing. Treating him as a god, uh, probably not good. I mean, I doubt he's been socialized. I doubt he has men pushing back and keeping him sane, telling him when his patterns are becoming are getting out of control. Uh, Peterson said he only met one person who managed himself and complete who managed who kept himself together while unemployed and completely free. And he said this man was extraordinarily smart. So a rare character. You put all those things together, mm-hmm. his man will be unraveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what sort of uh, compassion does he have for humanity at that point? I remember reading this really interesting piece uh, from, I think it was the Wikipedia page on Owen Rommel, where, um, which tracks, among many other beautiful aspects of this guy's life, um, it tracks his uh, sort of um, <clears throat> it tracks his uh, relationship with uh, the, the hated one, and um, something that's really interesting is that you know he's a man of war, uh, sort of raised after, I think, World War One, I. I can't remember if he sees that in World War One, but he's sort of always, like, he's very, very, very clever youngster, Owen Rommel, and he, um, you know, builds a glider, and he's, when he's at the age of, like, 11 with a friend, he builds a functioning glider, which, like, you know, to, at the age of 11, to trust your own engineering skills and have to jump off a cliff, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty prodigy. Fights, he fights in, like, the Alpine Corps, I think, he's a, he's a commander. I think he, he saw some action in World War One. He did? Yeah. But in the Alpine Corps, right? Anyway, he's, I don't that so he sees he's a commando, I think he's a snow commander, and then as he he sees um, after the introduction of tanks into World War One, he sees like warfare is changing, so he switches command from like this this you know uh, Navy SEAL program that he's on the snow fi- the snow commandos who were like the top shit in World War One, and he switches over to um, 
tanks and becomes you know the finest, probably the finest tank commander to ever fight in any war ever, right? Does there anyone on the Spring Storm as a competition? Well, the interesting thing he did reminds me of Philip II. There's this new technology. One or the Spanish one? Uh, the, the, sorry, the Macedonian one. Sure. Um, he, no one's, no one's had a tank battle before. The tanks in World War One, well, first of all, British. I don't know if the Germans had them. I, secondly, I don't know how much of a role they played. Uh, there, were, there were instrumental in, I think, a few, um, a few parts, later parts of the war. But I think what Rommel saw was like, this, this is the first. This, yeah, these things are players. I don't know, there's no rule books for this. Right. So he's figuring, out, figuring it out as he goes. And he, it's him and also the engineers who are building the machines. Right. Um, and the economists were allocating resources. But he figures out how to, th how to throw them together. Sure. And he figures it out much better than anyone else around. Okay. Uh, he's slapping around people left, right, and center. The, uh, the performance of the German army, it is terrifying. Yeah, first, I think first three years of the war, you said they don't lose a land battle? Something crazy like that. So, so someone said, I, I think you quoted um, someone saying the other day, wherever Rommel is, there is the front. There is the front. So like, yeah, this guy was like the golden boy of Germany, but it was really interesting that he was sort of like, all the way through the war, he was like, I'm just a German, doing my duty, I'm not a, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I'm not part of the party. And like, at a certain point, um, I, I can't remember who it was, and maybe Goebbels, whoever was running propaganda wanted to, like actually included um, Rommel in the newspaper as a party member. And Rommel was like, no, you get that out of there. And um, the, in the end, Rommel prevailed, and they they printed a retraction in the in the official state newspaper, which is insane. Um, but Rommel, at a certain point, like the in the Wikipedia page, they're describing his falling out with the the, the Fuhrer, and the, he says um, there's a point where Yenem said, uh, or that one said, if I um, if I lose, Germany can burn, and that is to me, the natural conclusion of, of fascism, which is something we touched on earlier. Like, the idea that if, if the state is associated with the self, right, it can be either healthy or unhealthy. Um, this, is a, this is a thread we actually discussed a long time ago, but uh, what, what happened in Egypt and the way that sort of um, society stayed healthy to the extent that it was healthy, I have no idea. It was probably a horrible, brutal place to live for most people, but, um, you know, Egypt had 2,000 years without a revolt. Uh, and you get, you get, if you go 2,000 years out of revolt, it means you're politically doing something right. I, I, to me, uh, you know, that's, that's a sign of stability. America went 300 years only one revolt, and we call that good innings, you know? So a couple thousand years without a popular revolt, what's Egypt doing right? Uh, part of the answer, I think, is like it's doing its mythology, right? Like the story of, um, of Osiris and Set and uh, Isis and, and Horus, which uh, is, is just unbelievable. There's this beautiful 15-minute uh, video of Peterson explaining it. But like the mythology there is just insane. But also like the political, the way that the person of the pharaoh is embedded in that mythology is really important. So there's this idea for the Egyptians that the pharaoh brings the mart, M-A uh, apostrophe A-T, and the mart is sort of like the right, uh, the right way of goodness upon the land. Sort of cognate, I would say maybe with um, Hebrew shefa which is like abundance, or something, something to that extent. It has a very circle of life feel to it. Um, but the, the basic idea behind Mark is that if the pharaoh lives, the, so the pharaoh is sort of uh, the god Horus incarnate, like he's the living king, um, whose job it is to, to sort of 
uh, integrate the best of his culture and also respond to the modern world, whatever that happens to be. And so to the extent that the pharaoh lives with uh, or in accordance with this mythos of himself, and he, he like discharges his duty as a, as, a, as a god or as a demigod, or as like that person who is the god, it's unclear how that you know, transubstantiation works. But to the extent that he incarnates that correctly, he's, um, he's maintaining the mart of Egypt. That means the Nile's going to raise in the right time, and the seasons will come and go, and there won't be political unrest, and everything will be good. So when he acts like a saint, when he acts like the Rebbe, Egypt will prosper. Correct. That's the central premise of Egypt. You got it. And so, and that works. So in a sense, the Egyptian priesthood oh. sort of applies this um, cultural okay. muscle. I could build a pyramid to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, thank you. Like, you wrapped up uh, an open question. Like, what was, was the pitch for the pyramids? Like, hey guys, what if we take everyone in this country, like all the males, you'll give me two months of your time, and you're going to build a big pyramid, so I have this sick house when I'm dead. Sick house when I'm dead, yeah. yeah. And, and they're like, uh, okay, cool, alright, we'll have like a pool, we'll use it or something when you're dead. It's like, no, no, it's just like, it's stone, and stone all the way through, and uh, we're going to have to develop technology we don't actually have. Right, a bunch of you are going to die doing it, but it's going to be, it's going to really suck, it's, the Saharan Desert, guys. Okay, but after we build it, it's like, what, it becomes like a public resort? Like, do we always get to go there and visit? It's in a museum? Um, it's like, maybe people will come and check it out, but like, yeah, it's pretty hard to travel in this era. Like, you're not going to make money off tourism. So. Also, also something important. It's full of death traps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no one else can enter ever again. I'll put some gold in there too, and you can't have it, so fuck <laughs> you. Try, and like, I'll have a good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you're building it. <laughs> So, so that doesn't sound like a good pitch, but it seems like you have a better one now. What's your, what's your better pitch? Alright, so hear me out. When I act like a good guy, yeah. I am filled with the spirit of abundance, and that flows out into the rest of Egypt. Uh -huh. So everything kind of balances, not on you. Think of me as your sacrificial lamb, only I don't die, but I live. I have to <laughs> act in a Jesus-like manner right. my entire life, right. and you'll prosper. Right. So here's what's really cool. I think this idea actually gets sort of lifted into um, uh, so into into early Judaism. I think like that's in a sense it's almost um, ex it's explicit in the Bible itself. Moses is raised in the palace of the Egyptian king, which makes him Egyptian royalty, right? He's the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, which means he was an initiate in the Egyptian mysteries. So to the extent that there's a historicity to this story, and I feel like. I, I don't know about, I don't want to get involved in like the doctrinal issues of this sort of thing, but you know, there was a Hyksos movement from the region of Goshen, I think, mm -hmm. Israel, when, how many people, do you remember this? Uh, I think the number, if I recall, 480,000 people. Um, I think Josephus wrote it in the histories of the Jews. Josh, you can check that out. <laughs> and they go and settle in the region of Jerusalem. So right. There's a lot of parallels there, like, you know, they're on the Jerusalem part too, and you're like, alright, it'd be genius to see the parallels. So, so let's say, like, like, playing a bit loose with this, like, in terms of the way that memory makes culture, uh, and saying that, like, you know, you can have, like, an official rabbinically ordained, um, or, like, a bishop of Ulster, whoever, ordained, um, sort of calendar of things, you can say, no, the exact year when Moses receives the tablets is, you know, this exact year with 1313 BC, I think, is doctrine. Um, I think that's the giving of the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you could say that. Say you could say right like, well. well, that's roughly right, and like maybe there's a historical event that sort of, if not if not is exactly the scene for scene, sort of inspires 
this telling and like sort of encodes something profound about the sort of way we want to live in the world and the mm -hmm. sort of message we want to tell our kids. I think the historical part is really like what a stick figure is to an actual picture. And so it, gives you, it gives you an idea, but it's not the integral part, it's the encoding of these cultural myths. The last, what is it, two-thirds of the Torah is all just laws? And that's, that's put together in the same book as all these stories, so you'd assume they have the same function, which is to be enacted on a cultural level, and mm -hmm. also on a personal level in terms of behavior. Right. So, so at the very least, even if, so the, regardless of the extent to which Moses is a historical figure, he's certainly like the sort of central hero. Let's say, oh, then you have to ask ourselves, we have to depend, dispense with the historical aspect of it. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be Egyptian in the story? Well, so here, here's, here's something I want to play with, right? I want to just sort of, um, I, I don't want to dispense with the historical aspect. I want to sort of take it as far as we can with sort of just reached at the edge of our historical uh, mm -hmm. conjecture, right? And people can look up where, where the actual historical consensus lies now, but just sort of play with the limits of it. Do you have a number? No, it's just a bunch of text. Mm -hmm. Can you... There's a number. So... so uh, Moses took 30,000 men? Yeah. Oh. So look for the thing about 480,000 men. Okay, I have no idea what you guys are talking about anyway. Okay. We, we, you, may, you guys may have to just Google Kipsos, H-Y-K-S-O-S yourselves at home if you really care about the numbers. So moving along, I want to just sort of play with like the edge of um, sort of Moses' historical character and see what we can sort of figure out because like the, the proposition that there is, there was a, a sort of single charismatic chieftain who took the Hyksos from Egyptian hegemony, marched them through the Sinai to what we now think of as, as uh, Israel or Palestine or Israel-Palestine or whatever political nightmare we've managed to make of the thing today. Um, like in terms of um, like the, uh, and also blessing, let's say, let's say, let's say that, Baruch Hashem for like the blessing here. Um, but what's but like whatever whatever you want to say about that that march like the idea that there was a central charismatic leader at the at, at the heart of that march that seems reasonable right no no um, okay reasonable yes uh, is it reasonable to propose it no because at this point there's only textual evidence right so I'm not I'm not this which is, I wouldn't consider very strong uh, no I don't this is that's what I'm saying I don't think any anything I'm saying here right this isn't me in like the our best evidence points here. This oh, would be in the okay. imagination. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's entirely. What's 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 plausible within like the just like the edge of reasonable? You know, let's say that. It's entirely that's, reasonable. Okay, so it's reasonable as a charismatic chieftain. So then, something you want to ask is like, what can we say about the character of this charismatic chieftain? And I think like if you if you sort of just try and figure out what uh, elements are embedded in. Can I just check for working with the same story? Sure. So the Hyksos were an Asiatic people, which sure. in this context comes to mean the um, Israel, Syria, that region, sweep into Egypt, or slowly settle, take control of it at some point, and then around 1550 BC get kicked out by the native Egyptians, who then go on to conquer Israel, Israel and Syria. The Hyksos go on to conquer Israel. No, it's the Hyksos um, get kicked out of Egypt, they make the last stand somewhere in the south of Israel, then they disappear. They really? fragment. Make the last stand against who? The Egyptians. And the Egyptians then go and conquer all of the territory the Hyksos formerly inhabited. Like, they no longer have any, any political authority. Really? Yeah. Do we, know, do we know anything about their culture? A little bit. We have a bunch of their names, one of whom is called Yaqub. Yaqub Har? Har, yeah. 
Yakub Har. Har, Har meaning like high place, so I think exalted, but Yakub mountain. Amazing. Shalom Hakanaliyah, I think is appropriate. Shalom. Or like Elyon, most high. So, okay, so I, I'm sort of operating with from this very, like, sort of very cultural, miasmatic theory where it's like Carthage and Israel and Phoenicia and like the Hicksals are sort of the same people. Is that like yeah, a proposition? So. I mean, of course, they're totally different people, but it comes from a very small space. So, so I heard recently a, 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 um, a conjecture that what um, the, the, the way the Bible sort of ossified, the way of thinking of it, was. Um, was that there were uh, the Levites had this story about about going through the desert, and they brought it to the general tribes of Israel, who are a group of disparate tribes, and then that story became like their their uh, what would you say their mutual mythology, their sort of joint language. And um, I think what, when I think of this, I think like well, if you sub in tribal Levi for Hyksos, that might be exactly right. It could be the Hyksos came into that region, brought a story with them, developed that story, released it into the wild, let's say, and then regardless of uh, subsequent invasions, that story, was that seed was there and it could develop into something. People attempt to try and uh, perform an autopsy on the Torah and figure out what was the exact... Autopsy is the wrong, the wrong word. Um, they try and investigate in a Freudian way what was the conception of the Torah culture? What was the starting point? Or the inputs, um, and that seems to have a parallel in the makeup of the sons of Jacob. You have twelve sons divided into two camps, Leah and Rachel, and then they two are. And there's a slight hierarchical difference, and those sons themselves are subdivided into two camps: the actual wife and the handmaiden, Bilhah and Zilpah. And then again, there are relations. So, in a sense, let me see if I get this. There's there's a sense in which, to the extent that. Um, the covenant of the Torah is not merely a covenant uh, between man and God, whatever that means, but also a covenant between man and man. And um, there's a, there's a sense in which that's uh, that there might be a mythic encoding in the wives and, and children of Jacob as to the political hierarchies or political, um, what would you say, thermodynamically stable configuration of the tribes in harmony. Yes, it's a social contract which resulted from the merging of each tribe's stories and the prominence of their tribe. How successful was this was this story? At this point it's conjecture, I don't know what's going on. So you have four four different groups of people. Right. And Rachel's associated with Egypt, because her children are Yosef, Ephraim and Manasha, whose mother was the daughter of Pharaoh. What? And they're oh, yeah. situated in the same territory right. as Samaria and all them. That's the influential northern kingdom of Israel. So, so they're the Sephardim of Egypt. Yeah, so you can say that they, um, they're, they're, the, they're the cultured folk from Egypt. Maybe they're the, the Hyksops. That part's conjecture. Right. But then you have, the, then you have uh, Yehuda and the ones to the south, and they're more uh, a rugged folk. Judah's a backwater for a, for a long time, much less important. And much more inhabited by nomads than the relatively more fertile north. Right. Yeah, you got this interesting account in the minor letters, 13-something BC, you have Labayu, king of Shechem. Huh. And uh, he's expanding at the time, and he forms an alliance with the Apiru, which were a class of people, um, P and B, right? You make it with the same, play, it's entirely the same sound, except one, your verb calls it a tense one and not. So, Apiru, Apiru, it frequently changes the language. Apiru, Apiru. Yeah. 
which is related to Adair. Hebrew, Hebrew. Hebrew. Right. And, um, but it's not, it, it relates to, a, as far as I can tell, a class of people, a bunch of different ethnicities, tend to be uh, landless. Ah, that's interesting. And so he made an alliance with these, this, uh, this enfranchised class and began expanding his territory. It was kind of like the Stormland, Game of Thrones, the Stormlands invading the Riverlands, even though um, there's a king. Right. Uh, there's like a whole bunch of letters between him and the king of Egypt saying like, it's chill, it's chill, I'm just invading my friend over here, no need to worry. Wow, so the client, he's like a client state, have a, make a little war and then ride into the hegemon and like, arguing that the little war is not actually a breach of the peace. Yeah. Wow. So, is this king of Shechem, is he, is he from like one of the tribes? Or there's, there's, a, yeah, so there's um, a parallel which people think that maybe the story of Shaul, Saul, is, uh, starts with Labai, the first king of what becomes Israel. Because 1209, I think, 1209, 1207 BC, you have right. the Menetostela, which talks, which is the first mention of Israel as a state. Right. You have the name, you have the marker for a people, yeah. followed by the word Israel. And they're situated in the north, and Egypt goes out and does battle with them. And how does that battle go? Well, Egypt says they won, but Egypt never goes back. And Egypt always boasts about winning, so... It's not really clear. It's not clear. But, we, but it's clear that there's some political entity already at play then. There's, yeah, there's something which can fill enough men that they uh, come to the attention of Egypt. That, that Egypt thinks it's worth, it's worth reporting in the Daily Steel. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so they make a minute to steal. So at this point, uh, you think that there may be a sort of mythic encoding of like this handover of power from the children of Rachel to um, the children of, so, of Judah? So yeah, the people he's starting to um, integrate at this time, maybe they fall into a bunch of different groups and he creates a backstory about them all being the same people. Hmm. So this relates, this relates very much to um, what, uh, something I, I talked with Mike Foyer about in the very first episode of this podcast uh, when we were talking about uh, the Jewish lens of history and the, and the idea that, that the way the Jews conceive the past is primarily one of memory, not history. And so the idea here is like maybe the way that you construct a mythology for your kids is you sort of take the best lessons and you sort of build um, flawed individual leaders into perfect archetypes so that they may be best learned from and integrated. Mm. The entire age is encapsulated in the best of her sons, let's say Moshe. So here's, here's a crazy, um, here's a crazy uh, extension of that idea, right? Of the idea that like we, we're working with um, archetypes who are built around actual people. Um, apparently, there was this, there was this pharaoh, Djoser uh, or something, that mm -hmm. they think is associated with um, the biblical Joseph and the um, Egyptian mythological Osiris. And it may actually be, like, I, I hear this and I feel I like... Hope, I hope this one pans out and I'm like, oh shit, that's real. Yeah. Uh, I think it might be. Because at this point, I think a lot of the kings of Israel have been identified in non-biblical sources. So, okay. oh really? Yeah, yeah, I think... The majority... I think, like, like, 800 BC downwards, it's pretty accurate. Right, yeah. The fact that we're fighting over David, like, already means, like, we've pushed the frontier back. Like, it's 1000 BC. A thousand BC, right? But like from 800 on, we're pretty clean. We know like the the chronicles of the Judean kings. We know, we know they existed. Um, do I think there's a few points where the Tyre neglects some pretty big world events just because it doesn't relate. Mm. I'm like, what's going on there? But 
<laughs> we have like foreign correspondence in the Bible. <laughs> Meanwhile, in China, <laughs> yeah, like even in that territory, like Egyptian battles and whatnot. Right. But you have like Omri, you have a uh, bit Humri in you know recorded in the temples in Babylon, mm. stuff like that. Ninth century BC, how's it work? Eighth century. Ninth century BC. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. But, but listen, like this fundamental idea, right? So, how many of the biblical characters are true? Wait, yeah, sorry for the sidetrack. But what you're saying is uh, that's how the Pirkei Avot is organized. Which is? It's the way it's, um, it's uh, the book, it's about the progress of time and, uh, and the sayings that came with each of those periods. Right. Right, right. So, so that, that, that's in a sense the same lesson. It's like this constant obsession with how can we derive the best wisdom from each generation as we, as we go through. And I sort of, I'm sort of thinking of like this, this character, right, this, this Joseph guy, as sort of like, um, you know, there's a story from the life of Shmuel Hanagid mm-hmm. that, uh, that when the sultan of that particular kingdom in Spain was dying, his, his like, son was like, asked him, like, how should I rule, father? And, and the father's like, just that Jew over there is where I got all my best decisions, just follow him. <laughs> and it's like, it's mythology, this story may not happen, but the fact that it's like, you know, within stories... Is it a, Jewish, is it a, is it a Jewish source? I don't know, Extra, um, the, the guys over at uh, Extra History, they put it up, so... I trust them, but it's just a YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah but this is... I still trust them, though. I trust them implicitly, but also they have a, um, they, they have like really good fact-checking, and they did say about this one that they're not sure about it. But, but let's, let's, let's move into the speculation for a second. If you have Joseph, right, let's say you have like this actual character who shows up in Egypt at the time and it's just like has a good mind for finance. Like, you know, that, that's pretty fitting into a certain archetype. And he like, he advises the Egyptians, he's like, the signs are clear, the famine is coming. If we actually build good granaries and like sort of stock up, we'll be okay, we'll survive the chaos. And they listen and then they survive the chaos. And so if you imagine that actually happened, and then imagine like what folk tales about that guy would start to look like after a while, then like it's not crazy that Joseph could become Osiris, like the figure of the old king who built up culture to what it is. Does that does that square with your assessment? I mean there are a few steps that are missing. But have you have you seen the Peter Sonian thing on, on Osiris and Horus and Isis? I have. There's this idea that, Hor- that Osiris in the story represents like, the great father. It represents culture. Well, it has Osiris. There's the one with Set, how he chops up Osiris. Right. So you know what that line is in the Bible? Set chopping up Osiris? Yeah. Who? So that, that's chaos overrunning order, right? In the Bible, um, I think the verse that corresponds to is, And a new pharaoh arose who knew Joseph not. Like, there's this idea in... in the Bible that to know is like coming into. No, I don't think Yosef's big enough to inspire the image of Osiris. Osiris is the god. Well, the Steps. god. So first of all, the god is is actually is actually a hotly contested thing in Egypt. Like there's a, there's an Indian that Ra I think is the god as well. Fine, but he's an elder god. He is, but only I think only later on the, the. He's a big fucking deal, and if you pause that. Yosef inspired Osiris. Just the original sort to pause that all the other gods are inspired by people as well. And just as you don't know who they are, why would you assume you know who this one is? It's a weak link. Interesting. I, I wonder how much to the extent to which they were. Like, in a sense, Horus is, um, by definition, the best example we have of, of the correctly ruling pharaoh. Like, I think, I, I happen to feel that the, um, the word mat, right, we talked about before, 
his um, like their 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 notion of the Tao. I don't think Yosef inhabits an archetype. That's the thing. He's uh, the voice that whispers in the king's ear. But where else do you see that the voice who whispers or the shadow government that gets everything done? They never rise to prominence. We don't. Nehemia, uh, Mordechai. Just among the Jews. Everywhere else, take Aladdin. He's a bad guy. Jafar. In in so many fantasy books, the plot goes. The evil uncle or the advisor to the king tries to usurp power. Yeah, that, that uncle is set. That's 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 the Egyptian yeah. story. So I'm saying that archetype doesn't exist outside of Judaism. The archetype. I mean, not exclusively. I'm saying not that I know of in Western culture. Uh, the Lion King is is the same story. Yeah, it's, I it's, mean, uh, they have the yeah they have none the the advisors are never held in a positive light. I mean, the you Lion have king? yeah you have. Um, Rafiki, but he's he's nuts. He's not part of society. He's separate to it. So he adds another eye. That's common belief. That's common belief. He's, yeah, he's but he's also a thing. He 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 serves a function. He's also an archetype. Anyway, right. those guys aren't. They're not. They're interesting characters. They're not heroes. Where do you see? Where do you see outside of Jewish texts this archetype of the hero advisor? You see it a lot in Judaism. The hero advisor. That's interesting. So so this is what I'm what I'm saying, and this is like. Um, I think this is crucial to the, to the thesis here. It's like we would have experienced the same guy from one side, and the Egyptians would have experienced him from another side. Because all they saw is a competent administrator step in and save them all from famine. Oh, you're saying, okay. I saw the fact that Yosef was Jewish. Well, it was a, it was a Hebrew as a weak evidence against. Right. Um, but the fact is, maybe he existed and we claimed him as the Egyptians claimed him. Right. And exactly. when we claimed him, we made like when like white Jesus, we Jewish <laughs> Osiris. Jewish Osiris. Yeah. And so so it's I mean, very exalted. Like the the grandson of ja- uh, no, the son of the favored son of Jacob. But that makes him an Israelite. Yeah. Like, do, really fucking Israelite. The Bible. Oh, like, of course. Clearly, yeah. if you if you read between the lines, has like this big sort of um, I, I, I want to say almost infatuation with Egypt. Like the whole like so much of the drama takes place there. So much of the the, the biggest conversations. So many of the biggest conversations that Moses has in his life with the, you know, the Egyptian pharaoh and his big magic, his moment of magic competition where he becomes a prophet is against the Egyptians, and like that's that's something that I I see like sort of in the at the heart of Judaism, and this is why I think it's like sort of if you take a if you take a if you try and fill in the historical gaps, I think that if you're starting with the culture of Egypt, right, and you're someone who's brought up in the in the pharaoh's household. Therefore, you would be part of the mystery cult. And, like, there are sections at the beginning of the Bible, I think, in very shit that, like, really match Egyptian, like, ritual uh, recitations of about the god, the creation god, Ptah, I think. Uh-huh. You may know from uh, the popular video game Age of Mythology as a intermediary god. But, um, but it seems to indicate that, like, there's a, there's a, there's a commonality between the, the Bible and the... And Egyptian relic. So the idea that like the guy who started Judaism was like well trained in Egyptian lore, like that's sort of borne out by the fact that there's Egyptian prescriptions at the beginning. You of also there. see in Egyptian belief there's um, the notion of pure and unpure. There's the sacred bull which is sacrificed, the bull of Apis. You have the paraduma. And circumcision. Circumcision. That's that's the mark of the priesthood in Egypt. And so when when everyone in, in Judea is getting circumcised, that means we're all part of the same priesthood. The Greeks held the Egyptians the same sort of contempt they held the Judeans for being superstitious. <laughs> we were playing an entirely different game, too. An entirely different game. Yeah. Um, we didn't believe in ignorance, we believed in dreams. 
Um, okay, so so we actually uh, to change to change uh, shift again. We actually promised some peop- the people some discussion about Rick and Morty, and we have not delivered at all. Wow, Rick and Morty. So uh, starting again, fellas. Actually, tune out now for fifteen minutes or so if you want. Here we go. Um, Tales of the Citadel, one of the finest moments in television of our time. Discuss. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, we've reached that. All right, all you folks, close your No, I, I really you know, Rick, Sometimes you got to give people what they want. Uh, shut up, Rick. I'm trying to do a podcast. But, but this 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 um, episode, I think, it was such a sterling moment of um, television because they did had this uh, frame narrative where Rick and Morty just go off on some adventure and they're like. Morty idly muses on like what sort of civilization a civilization of Ricks would have just reconstituted. And so, so they take your expectations, they kick it in the nuts, and they throw it out the window. Like, nope, Citadel of the Ricks. Yeah. And you walk in and I'm like, not quite sure where this episode's going to go. So it seems a bit fragmented. Then the narrative arc emerges. But what made it amazing, oh my god, like, like I'm floating in space. What made it amazing is that every shot was so rich in meaning. Yeah. Like directors sometimes have these shots where it's just a glimpse, a few seconds you see a scene and it's got a collection of things in it and you know, time, place, era, everything you'd know about the context. Right. And it was just like a series of, uh, of vines, like three seconds at a time strung together. It's a series of vines is a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was that bit, just Morty's killing Morty's. Yeah. It was like crazy things like that over and over again, but it was so relevant. It was, I, I uh, was told by a friend, actually, something I missed the first time I watched it was um, uh, a friend Jamie pointed this out, that in um, the beginning of the episode, there's this, there's this sort of shot on the news of, of candidate Morty, uh, the Morty candidate, and, and the newscasters just talk over him, so all you see is like just screens from it, just shots from his campaign, and one of the shots is him standing in a hospital next to a, 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 a Morty with a trunk face, and a broken arm. <laughs> and so my friend Jamie pointed out that like we've already just seen trunk faces before. They're in interdimensional cable. And they're like they're essentially they, they stand for the bisexuals of that of of this of sort of the, the multiverse, let's say. Like they're openly they're like bisexual, like there's an attack ad, like, eh, we can't have the, the trunk people getting married and like, <laughs> yeah. there's another one which is like, eh, let the trunk people get married, you know, like you have like these political campaign ads. So what, what Morty, what candidate Morty's doing is he's visiting a victim of sexual violence in hospital, in, in um, hospital, a victim of, at least, a prejudice by it. Yeah. So he's, he's establishing himself as the um, populist candidate, you know, as the, as the pe- man of the people, just by, by doing that gesture. And that is conveyed in the, in the cartoon itself by like half a second of footage of just him staying in a hospital. And, you, and if, you don't, if you miss that, you miss that. And this, the show keeps going. Every line, um, the point where the Rick's in the standoff with police Rick's and the, the police officer's response, do you remember it? Uh, oh yeah, I thought of you in this line. It's, uh, uh, we're working stiff Rick's just yeah, like you. Justice is our production line. We're working stiff Rick's just like you, but our assembly line is justice. <laughs> what are your demands? <laughs> it's like, there's this, there's this certain um, uh, profound... Um, Almost Kafkaesque horror, and I mean, like you know, there's this line about Kafka. I forget who says it, but if you want to really understand the horror of Kafka, don't read his literature. Like where he talks about, like you know, the horrors of waking up one day and finding you're a giant cockroach and trying to deal with that. Like no, no, that's that's not the horror of Kafka. The horror of Kafka is that he lived a life of 
of horrible, quiet, muted despair as an office clerk. Eight hours a day, he just, he just wasted his gift. And he knew it, he was aware of that his whole life. That, that's the despair of Kafka. And what you see in some of the love rips, like in this moment especially, is like, these cops, he tries to reason with them and say, like, hey, the system created is clearly not working. And what they say is, look, we get it, but we're working so much like you, but we, the sort of, um, even at, at our level of intelligence, this maxed out level of intelligence, we're still aware that the way the incentive structure is set up here, I can do no better than to continue doing my job in the way that I'm doing it. And there's a sense of like sort of resignation to the system. And I think that is, is sort of endemic all the way through society right now. This like, earned or unearned, this idea that... Well, I yeah, think there's a problem behind that, behind that conception. There's this belief that if I'm not in the center spotlight, if I'm not on the tallest pyramid, the top of the tallest pyramid that exists, my life has been wasted. Right. So how are you going to have, you know, 300 million Alexander the Greats in America? It's impossible. So it's not even, I don't think it's a healthy way to even think about it. I think you want to be... Maybe this is what happens when you're devoid of your community and your tribe. You have no small or reasonable sized goal to go for. You automatically start wandering and you latch onto these random big shiny things. What you want to do, I imagine, the life all lived is... For the average person, you've got to be a contributing member of society and you've got to be following the rules. And that means there's going to be a lot of office clerks and a lot of accountants. Because mm -hmm. as long as they're necessary, they're going to be there. Right. But you have a rich life on the side. You've got more going for you than just being an accountant. And for me, I'm like, the better your opportunities are, I think I translate that into if I can't achieve meaningful work, try to work as little as possible and have a rich life despite that. Like, you go to sleep, yeah, you go to work. And try something on the side. Peterson's advice speaks to me because I think it's true for society on average. Right. If you're creative, it's a high risk, high, um, high, risk, high return. So which means all of you are failing to a very small number. Because grabbing all the money and all the applause, have something going for you and on the side do your art. I remember, I remember this, this thing really uh, spoke to me when he said this because... Um there's a, there was a statistic you threw out, something like, there are 70 million songs on SoundCloud. This is so discouraging. If you're, if you're an artist and you're trying to make it, don't listen to this. Oh, oh um, no. Sort of, I mean, this is embedded within the Rick and Morty conversation, so the Rick and Morty fans already aren't listening. Rick and Morty Tales from the Citadel has this really uh, interesting opening sequence where uh, this sort of lead Rick and Morty go on the, their own self-contained adventure. And then you see this um, panoramic sort of montage of what the Citadel of Rick's, the new Citadel of Rick's looks like. What sort of picture does that paint for you? You see a lot of shots of, of Rick's parodying other, other famous um, movies and books. You see the Rick over here in the school looks the same as the headmaster in Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. <laughs> <laughs> and the opening shot with the, you know, the steel I-beams coming in evokes that famous picture of all those workers having lunch while constructing the Empire State Building. Right. I really like the way the uh, Citadel Morning News works as well. <laughs> Dragging like, like uh, outages in East Sanchez Heights and is your uranium-powered thing making you sick? The answer may not surprise you because yes, it's uranium. <laughs> I, I feel like these are just sort of idle gags but nothing just an idle gag in this show, and so it's like, um... In this episode especially. Yeah, in this episode, they're not cheap guys. throwaway lines. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a parody of the, it's the exact opposite of how the news normally styles itself. It's, weather news, you know nothing, be afraid. Right. And he's like, no, you're the savvy internet consumer. 
but, of course but, it's the uranium. Of course it's the uranium, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like it's interesting that a society of geniuses couldn't solve this, right? <laughs> you shouldn't be able to market uranium products. That's a pretty. Oh, they have solved it. He's just saying it. He's the solved. They have life. solved it. He's like the answer will not surprise you. It's uranium. Oh, so they have solved it. Oh, that's interesting. So if to you it displays like the sort of problem-solving capabilities of this technological society, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. I got the opposite message. Uh, let's 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 go over the uh, simple Rick scene. Oh, this scene's amazing. Those stories and more after this break. Sixty iterations off the central finite curve. There's a Rick that works more with wood than polarity plating. His name is Simple Rick, but he's no dummy. He realized long ago that the greatest thing he'd ever create was his daughter. I love daddy! We captured that moment. We run it on a loop through Simple Rick's mind. And the chemical that makes his brain secrete goes into every Simple Rick, Simple Wafers, Wafer cookie. <laughs> Come home to the impossible flavor of your own completion. Come home to Simple Rick's. Just one day remains before... Wow. Terrifying, but... <laughs> Can't say it's a bad thing. You can't say it's a bad thing. Not necessarily, no. It's interesting. So there's a sense, um, I think it's, it's like this really old dilemma in, in literature. This, uh, in the Odyssey, I think it's lotus eating. That bunch of, there's one of the islands that Odysseus stops at. His men just like start eating the local fruit, which has like a psychedelic effect maybe, or some kind of intoxicating effect. And they just, all they want to do with the rest of their lives is sit around eating this fruit. And Odysseus has to schlep them off. And I feel like that there's this, there's this theme that runs through that, through moral philosophy, where this problem is a big one, um, of this question of like, what do you do if you're given the opportunity for the facsimile of a good life, as opposed to a, um, a genuine but hard life. And, and the simple ricks is like the highest, let's say, I would, um, reasonable answer to that from a utilitarian point of view. But of course, if you can slap uh, packaging on it, you should. Right? It should be corporatized. It's almost self-evident that you should be able to uh, spare yourself the experience of actually living a good, long, healthy <laughs> life and actually just package the sensation of it, because that's all you really want. You can go on being awesome. And all through the mo- all, all the while, going through the motions of keeping a civilization together. How do you figure? This is their coffee, but on steroids. It is coffee on steroids, yeah. The opiate of the masses is the symbol Rick. Uh-huh. In a sense, Willy Wonka is like the peddler of, of opium of the day. So it's um, it's it's a very powerful scene, but also like a very hilarious scene. <laughs> what makes it particularly funny is uh, they grab your attention and go on a particular narrative arc, and you're following it through. Like, aha, aha, this is where it's going. Then bam, like, what's up to the right? New plot point. Right. I feel like this is something Dan Harmon likes in in this and community, like just this constant sense of vertigo. Uh, let, let's jump ahead to like the, some of the central themes that come up in this episode. I think it builds a certain sense of exploration. How's that? You know, he's established enough where I don't know where this episode's going to end. Right, so you actually have genuine faith in Dan Harmon to sort of lead you through this, this place. To genuine I'm paying attention is what I'm saying. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. And he's rewarding me. I pay attention and every single scene... There's these gags, and I'm like, oh, oh, I caught that. Okay, he's saying something there, and it's really funny. Yeah, I, I really like the, um, the confrontation in the, uh, in the store when the, the two cops go to, um, to investigate something in Morty <laughs> Town and get to, like, look at discrimination. And there's this great moment where the, the guy sweeping the, the, uh, the floor in the convenience store that was robbed 
he's a moiety with like a weird like he's purple his purple face and has like a long snout and and the cops are asking the our proprietor for the propriety morty for revealing um features he's like no just like four guys yellow shirts regular mortys a normal mortys just four normal mortys and the guy sweeping the, the one with the purple like alien face is normal in an accusatory way and just and the um the proprietor responds with put it in your blog <laughs> and it, it, it's like in that line there's such a dismissal of such a huge chunk of modern culture is like utterly irrelevant to the to the cogs of when you say uh, the ground level fiscal life you think there's a point behind that like yeah. prioritize your issues well the, I think the genius of Harmon every time he states any position is he does it well from both sides so there's like the there's the, the element of like focus on real issues which is like we're actually living in poverty like your your all these considerations are trivial the ones you're obsessing over but there's also like the, the mirror option which is like the utter disregard of um, if, if, uh, the outcasts in society you can make a good case. I think, like Cornel West, for instance, would be a, a sort of drive of, of um, sort of in the tradition. He says in the tradition of Martin King explicitly, but of like that, that idea that like the widow, the orphan, and the stranger are like those are the people you got to be taken care of. And you can sort of see this scene from that direction, where like this guy is the outcast, and therefore his dismissal, the dismissal of him by the owner, who obviously has power over him, is sort of symptomatic of a broader dismissal of, of different people within Morty Town. You can see he has bags under his eyes. He's not really angry. He's oppressed. Mm. It's a good subtlety. There's this line the cop, Morty says, like about Morty's being sidekicks. Without a side to kick, they just start kicking. <laughs> That's very Nietzschean. It is very Nietzschean, isn't it? <laughs> it's like we need goals to orient ourselves. Yeah. They're thrust into an environment with no clear hierarchy to climb. It's interesting how they, they model sort of the breakdown of the patriarchal father this way. Like this idea that society plays this role of organization. I've seen that kid before. The angry, the angry Morty riding on a bike just glaring at the police. Just throwing, throwing a pointless challenge to the wind. Right. What were your opinions on uh, the main speech? Let's, let's play that now. Oh, jeez, Rick. What do I know about knowing stuff? Get in the f- also <laughs> amazing scene. More lasers. You can take more time to answer the question if you like. Okay. <laughs> How would you solve the Citadel's financial crisis? First off, can I just say that I believe this Citadel is the greatest in the entire multiverse. Woo! Now, I believe the answer to your question has three parts. First, education spending must get much higher. But it has to be balanced with defense. Whoa. Can we fact check this, please? Uh, <laughs> never mind. Who am I kidding? This race is over. And that's how you run a citadel. Candidate yeah. <laughs> Morty. The number of displaced Mortys is soaring, while Rick's satisfaction levels are plummeting. Solve. And the divide between the two groups has never been wider. Solve, Solve that, that one, one real quick. <laughs> I don't see a divide between Rick's and Morty's. Oh, shocker. I'd like to offer a rebuttal <laughs> Gentlemen, gentlemen I think we can all agree on one thing Well, it came out as two things But you get the idea You guys finished? The division I see is between the Ricks and Mortys That like the Citadel divided And the rest of us I see it everywhere I go I see it in our schools Where they teach Mortys we're all the same Because they're threatened by what makes us unique I see it in our streets, where they give guns to Mortys, so we're too busy fighting each other to fight real injustice. I see it in our factories, where Ricks work for a fraction of their boss's salary, even though they're identical and have the same IQ. 
the Citadel's problem isn't homeless Mortys or outraged Ricks. The Citadel's problem is the Ricks and Mortys feeding on the Citadel's dead. Holy sh**. He's headed for the flavor core! But I've got a message for them. From the Ricks and Mortys keeping it alive. A message from the Ricks and Mortys that believe in this Citadel to the Ricks and Mortys that don't. You're outnumbered. Holy sh**. This piece, I feel, is one of those masterworks of populism. Really, in a sense, like this, uh, this uh, episode is the peak of the Rick and Morty series, or all three seasons. And this scene, this speech, is the peak of this episode. It's the moment where Candidate Morty goes from being a joke to being like the, the forerunner in this race. And like that's the big plot driver. And I think it's just a, a classic in, in populist, in populist speech, speeches just straight away. Something about it, that when you reach this point in the show, suddenly take it very, very seriously. And so there's a certain gravitas. There's also the effect of an idea whose time has come. Right. And this came you know, just after the whole Trump candidacy and everyone not knowing what is up and what is down. Yeah. It's there's one thing I think that's sort of, um, that sort of uh, really alighted on, on some of the, the huge dispute over Trump's actions and Trump's uh, perspective and <coughs> Trump's goals and all this stuff is that like, there's, a, there's a real sense of confusion, right? Like, half the country has to be wrong. And so the argument isn't about, isn't about um, are we all on the same page? The argument is about which half of us is wrong, about like, fundamentally. And I think that, that's really mirrored in the sort of ambivalence of the candidate Morty character. And you see that being like, really um, played out in this, sort of, in this sort of stuff. Like, the fact that he's so charismatic and charming on stage, then he just like, ruthlessly fires his campaign manager at the moment the task is done. There's, uh, there's, yeah, I think that's uh, the motif shifts from this point onwards. Uh, the, the story's really about the candidates. You got the candidates just about the more lasers, right? <laughs> like, it's just distilling it down into the sort of emotions they play, and there's a, there's, there's a candidate of fear, there's a candidate of entertainment. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's like, he, he doesn't respect the people of the process, so he's just using whatever tricks he can. He brings out his uh, chainsaw and three balls to juggle. Right. Um... <laughs> And then there's Morty, and he's cast right now as the innocent one who just speaks the truth and goodness will out. But the final takeaway at the end turns on his head once more, and, you have, and it snaps you out of it, and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. And you're left for the question is that what's happening now? I think that's what, that is what's happening now. Like that great speech at the end, you know, politics and order. Let's, let's talk about that one for a bit. You have to be stopped. He, he, could, he couldn't be allowed to win. Then you should have worked on your aim, bro. He's alive? No, 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 you gotta listen to me. I, I worked for him, I was his campaign manager. That Morty is not what he seems. Yeah, well, no Morty seems like a president. He won? Yeah, it was a blowout. Would hardly call it a blowout. It was almost close enough to trigger a recount. Jesus, what are you, joke security now too? Why am I still here? I already confessed to everything. Your case has been reviewed. You're free to go. But I violated at least a dozen departmental codes. New department, new codes, new citadel. 
This this we miss graduation? Where are the new rigs? No graduation. No new rigs. The school's curriculum is changing. To what? I don't know and I don't have to know. I've been fired. Good luck, turds. Holy crap. Slick's wish came true. Sorry I'm late, Mr. President. Had a little crisis at work. Worth it! It's no problem. Uh, a little more off the top. You were saying... Garment District, Rick? We were saying, President Morty, that we don't care who sits in that yeah, seat. A Rick, a Morty, a goddamn Jerry, doesn't matter. We've been running the Citadel since before the Council, and you'll find that we're still running it now. Does he really speak for everyone here? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's important to be clear. Raise your hand if he speaks for you. Is that enough off the top? I don't know. Is it? Yes, yes, goddamn, yes. Great. Good. This seems like a good time for a drink and a cold, calculated speech with sinister overtones. A speech about politics, about order, brotherhood, power. But speeches are for campaigning. Now is the time for action. That scene where Morty's holding up a mirror and he's looking back and all the big movers and shakers of yeah. the Citadel. Why do you think that is? Uh, it, it reminds me of I think an old Hasidic tale, where it's um, it says if you add, it, I mean it's told through parable at length, but if you add a, a, a thin slice of silver behind a pane of glass, then all you can see is yourself. Can you walk me through the implication of that? It, it implies that uh, Morty is utterly self-focused, you know, that he's taking a haircut in, in council, which implies a certain vanity. And then, like, that means that a, he sees everything through the perspective of self-interest, represented by the mirror, the little piece of silver behind the glass. Transforms a window, right, which is something which you see outside to others, into a mirror. Which oh, I didn't see that. I didn't... The way I took it was um, he was looking at them from behind, so it was another very calculated move. He could see them without them seeing his reaction, so to take them completely by surprise. Oh, that's really interesting. It's, it's that's almost predatory. Yeah. It's a periscope. He's, he's, he's calculated. He's, yeah, he's, he's acting casual. Yeah, he disarms them with that move. There's no anger. Boom. Predetermined signal. Yeah. It was planned. And that line, is that enough of the top? Did you see who's remaining? It's... The black turtleneck? I don't know who the other guy is. Steve Jobs in, like, guy in a blue jacket. Yeah, he's I don't know. Bezos? I don't know. But Steve Jobs, you know, those are the keys of the state. Who do you need? Eat Apple on board. <laughs> Monitoring all our calls. Facebook. That's really intense. That's a nice touch. Yeah, that is very, uh, very nice touch. Like, the archetype of Steve Jobs representing Apple, representing corporate interests remaining at the table because it's willing to sell out, whereas everything else gets fed to Moloch. I think it's a prophetic point. I think he's saying that the tools that they need in the modern era, a modern dictatorship will be very tech-heavy. Yes, that seems inevitable. Very heavy on surveillance and analytics. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's 1984. Oh, well, got it yeah. exactly right. Yeah, 1984 and Brave New World. <sighs> Looking forward to season four. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The last thing I want to talk with you about is the recent post on Slate's Codex, Ars Longa Vita Brevis. This is uh, the final part of the discussion tonight, so if you're out there listening to this and you're, you haven't read the Slate's Codex piece, highly recommend reading it. Otherwise, the next section and the final section probably won't make sense to you.
Uh, so it's very easily Googleable. Ars Longa, A R S L O N G A, Vita Brevis, V I T A B R E V I S. It's a saying that means um, the art is long and life is short. It's a recent article on the blog Slate Star Codex. Slate, S L A T E, Star, S T A R, Codex, C O D E X. If you want to listen to the rest of this podcast, I recommend uh, pausing and reading that piece first because otherwise this bit won't make sense. Uh, but Yankee, the piece. What was your first impression of it? Where to start? Wow, what a piece. It starts off reading like an old Jewish tale and then proceeds to incorporate what seems to be the core teachings of the particular brand of, of Judaism I grew up with, which was uh, Chabad. You grew up with Chabad? Yeah. Well, my family's not, but we're more than Orthodox, and I went to a Chabad school, Yeshiva College. So what, what were the parallels that you saw between that upbringing and this piece? Ars longa vita brevis. All right, let me try that again with a proper accent. Ars longa vita brevis. Okay, so that, that idea of the... This is a quote from Hippocrates, the uh, stands as like the beginnings of the doctors everywhere of their, their medical careers. Uh, this, these lines mean um, the art is long, uh, Vita Brevis, and life is short, which is, of course, a sentiment paralleled in the Jewish uh, rabbinic literature in Pirkei There was that conception of history, a throwback to, I think, it's your first podcast about Jewish history being a lens. Yeah. Michael Foyer. Michael Foyer. Michael Foyer. Um... And they, they really justify that lens. There's a grand project which is not just the history of humanity, but the project of humanity, which comes to some culmination at the end with the accumulation of all wisdom. Right. It was, it was a real new thing. He talked about that limiting feature and adds in some mathematics. He reached that asymptote at the top. I hope that asymptote, asymptote lies beyond the realm at the point at which we become gods. Why is that? That would be nice. To become gods. Yeah. I feel like reading uh, the artificial intelligence research on like what what a uh, a general so if a general intelligence is, is built that's actually friendly to humans, like what the first days of that could be like and well, you know, the the first thing is nanobots cure all disease and end all suffering and uh, heal all injury, um, and, and prolong life forever, which sounds an awful lot like a, a tick 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 from the promises of the books of Book of Prophets. And a lot of like um, uh, what would you say? Cosmology, every eschatology from several world faiths have this sort of uh -huh. this sense of apotheosis at the end of time. And it'd be interesting if, like that robotic project, the sense ends up vindicating all these <laughs> mystical perspectives. I think if everything goes to plan, what we might get is the Matrix. That is the best case scenario. I I don't know that it is. I feel like the Matrix is sort of um is is absent a sense that more is possible. You know, like this sense that. Uh, we could have a existence better than this because in the Matrix, the simulated universe is the universe will currently end. It's like our oh, big shock reveal, like mm -hmm. we're living in a simulation right now, which I think is fine. But I feel like on a on a sort of cosmic level, um, a Matrix with an end point is a very different sort of thing to a Matrix without an end point. It makes sort of civilization itself a sort of winnable game. Sure. And I wonder if that's that's I mean that's the right way to model this. That civilization is a winnable game, and you win by raising up an artificial general intelligence correctly. 
I would agree with that. I think the end point, though, stretches on for infinity. Um, consider what you need. It's, uh, it's the emotion. The emotion of happiness. Being in that state. Any of the combinations of actions you do don't really matter towards when compared to the emotion itself. So what if we reach the point where the actions you normally take towards achieving all these great inner states are no longer necessary, but the computer can plug you in, manage all the different chemicals in your body, and just give you this sustainable level of pure meaning. Right. So that, that's the sort of state of being that I feel is um, you can sort of prove to yourself that it's possible through the correct consumption of, say, psychedelics. Mm-hmm. That, that, that sense of One unending perfect trip. And there's another sense in that if we all become part of some sort of simulated mind, would it be any different from the Matrix? I'm saying not the Matrix where we're all walking around in the year 2001. Right. I'm saying we're all living in some sort of simulated reality where we don't need to really be doing very much more than being conscious of our own happiness. Right. Maybe by analogy, well, angels standing around the heavenly host, with the heavenly host standing around the throne of glory, singing God's praise infinitely. I think that's a really good uh, description of it. I don't, I don't know how much of that is metaphor or not, but certainly it seems to be a way of being that's prayerful, which is like uh, something that the mystics talk about in, in all sorts of world faith, and which is profoundly, deliriously enjoyable. The Buddha actually talks about on the path to enlightenment, you have jhanas, or um, states of sort of reliable states of induced trance, I think is a way of thinking of it. And the first jhana is immensely pleasurable. Because you can sort of get yourself to this, this stage in your meditative practice where you can on-demand sort of focus on a stimulus and then perform some sort of mental judo and then make that stimulus uh -huh. into overwhelming bliss. Uh, that's an incentive to sort of begin meditating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> certainly. Um, I like the image a lot because there have been a few... During my experience as a religious person, all the religious experiences I had were all through the vehicle of song. Mm -hmm. So that, that image conjures up with it an associated emotion. And I can, it, it drills at home, the emotion isn't the action. So I don't, like, logically speaking, you don't need some sort of grand narrative. You just want to get into that matrix and get cozy. That's what I think the best possible endpoint of history looks like. The co cozy in the matrix? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the one that we're facing down. I mean, that seems, certainly seems to be the dream of like Raymond Kurzweil, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe even the, on, a, on, a, on a more positive day, Nick Bostrom and Lizzie Wachowski. Something, getting back to the, to the piece of Alvangelita Brothers, something that uh, I see echoes of here is this sort of sense that, uh, first of all, it's a Hippoc Hippocratic um, title, and Scott, the author, is in fact a doctor, a psychiatrist, so he's a part of that covenant, in a sense, because he's taken that Hippocratic oath. So, Ars Long will be the brothers, the idea that the art is long and, and um, life is short. I think that that really plays through in medicine, where that you have you know, keeping abreast of medical discoveries, it's a huge thing for doctors. And um, it's a moral imperative to it, because if you don't, people die. Mm -hmm. And so, there's a sense that like, that's mirrored in this piece, but also like, I think it, it broadens out from that to represent a whole lot of other cultures or societies or. or um, what perspectives or, or ways of being that have these these core features in that? Did you get that sense from the from the piece? Are you talking within the um, a specific realm like architecture? You have the three levels. Uh, every single area in the world, uh, every single skilled profession must have a similar phenomenon going on. 
I think every every school must have a similar phenomenon, by, almost by definition, going on in the um, in the undesigned sense. This is the market's constantly pushing that forward, and every so often you have you stumble into a genius. But there are systems that are, that go one more than that, and kind of want to have as the focus, the sort of training of the ultimate person. And and as part of that, uh, you have you have a research department, and you have a, 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 an application of that. And there's a sense that like the sort of spiritual missions of like really old faiths, for one thing, like Judaism definitely has this sort of element, as you point out. But also like I think that the Jesuits, they strike me as having this sort of element. I think the rationalist community of California, uh, to the extent they see themselves as like the heir of They're Athens. playing the long game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean Scott Scott himself, like he I think he sees himself in sort of in the right in the middle of this in, in a whole bunch of different directions. It's interesting that with Unsung he chose to encode so much of his own writing in a in Jewish text, because Eliezer's conception of the community strikes me as much more Athenian. I'm only loosely familiar with it. What makes you say that? Um, or what, what does it mean to be Athenian? To sort of, to be Athenian means to sort of pick the, um, the Greek model of reality, and to the extent that's the Western model of reality, as like the that true material rationalism. Yeah, material rationalism in the modern day. But it wasn't, like, that's, that's not necessarily... A, um, baked in, you know, like material rationalism is sort of what happened, what the, the fruits of it. But there's a sort of, there's a tradition of thinking that starts in Greece, and there's a tradition of thinking that starts in Jerusalem, mm. and both of them have spawned empires. And there's a conversation between them, and Eliezer really picked the side hard for Athens. And Scott seems to be shifting the sort of Overton window a lot more towards Jerusalem. I see, I see. There's this uh, one way of conceptualizing it is that. Um, Jerusalem is a continuation of the accumulated project of culture and I think the bush might need some trimming but we really don't know how that works out it would just let the bush trim itself and on the other hand you have the Athenians who discovered wisdom no, who discovered ignorance as Yuval Nohara puts it and from there they start building but the, at least today the material rationalists they have no conception of the phenomenological, the subjective. It's a realm where the knowledge is very hard to transmute, and I think it's probably, probably their undoing is ignoring it altogether. Yeah. I want to read from a small selection from Blake that, that speaks to this, this sort of construction of, Ju of Jerusalem as the repository of culture, and uh, I want to get your reaction on that. There's, this is from... Um, this is from a letter by Blake called To the Christians. And it opens with this little, um, seeming like a quote section or something, that's uh, italicized. Devils are false religions. Open quote. Soul, soul, why persecutest thou me? I give the end of a golden string. Only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. Another letter begins itself. This is Blake's To the Christians. We are told to abstain from fleshly desires, that we may lose no time from the work of the Lord. Every moment lost is a moment that cannot be redeemed. Every pleasure that intermingles with the duty of our station is a folly unredeemable, and is planted like the seed of a wild flower among our wheat. All the tortures of repentance are tortures of self-reproach, on account of our leaving the divine harvest to the enemy, the struggles of entanglement with incoherent roots. I know of no other Christianity, and of no other gospel, than the liberty both of body and mind to exercise the divine arts of imagination 
imagination, the real and eternal world of which this vegetable universe is but a faint shadow, and in which we shall live in our eternal or imaginative bodies when these vegetable mortal bodies are no more. The apostles knew of no other gospel. What were all their spiritual gifts? What is the divine spirit? Is the Holy Ghost any other than an intellectual fountain? What is the harvest of the gospel and its labors? What is that talent which it is a curse to hide? What are the treasures of heaven which we are to lay up for ourselves? Are they any other than mental studies and performances? What are all the gifts of the gospel? Are they not all mental gifts? Is God a spirit who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, and are not the gifts of the spirit everything to man? O ye religious, discountenance every one among you who shall pretend to despise art and science. I call upon you in the name of Jesus. What is the life of man but art and science? Is it meat and drink? Is not the body more than raiment? What is mortality but the things relating to the body which dies? What is immortality but the things relating to the spirit which lives eternally? What is the joy of heaven but improvement in the things of the spirit? What are the pains of hell but ignorance, bodily lust, idleness, and devastation of the things of the spirit? Answer this to yourselves and expel from among you those who pretend to despise the labors of art and science, which alone are the labors of the gospel. Is not this plain and manifest to the thought? Can you think at all and not pronounce heartily that to labor in knowledge is to build up Jerusalem, and to despise knowledge is to despise Jerusalem and her builders? And remember, he who despises and mocks a mental gift in another, calling it pride and selfishness and sin, mocks Jesus the giver of every mental gift, which always appear to the ignorance, loving, hypocrite, as sins. But that which is a sin in the sight of cruel man is not so in the sight of our kind God. Let every Christian, as much as in him lies, engage himself openly and publicly before all the world in some mental pursuit for the building up of Jerusalem. What was the historical context of that? This was Blake writing uh, just at the cusp of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. So he was responding, as he points out in his poem, um, Jerusalem, the short version, uh, that he was surrounded by dark satanic mills. And he saw himself as a someone trying to push back against the, um, the subjugation of true, what he saw as true religion to the structures of of, of and say the marketplace and the press of authority of the time. Seems like he saw the world beginning to change what could be for the better, but also had the danger of changing for the worse. Yeah. He puts forward a, uh, he puts forward a good argument. No, he puts forward a well-delivered argument, but he doesn't say how science might improve man's condition. Maybe that's self-evident. Yeah, I wonder how much you just believe in progress, like capital P. Anyway, this is certainly the, um, the sort of model I have when I think of building up Jerusalem. Thank you for uh, a wonderful chat tonight. Thank you. We're going to leave it there. Yankee Klein, 
Ladies and gentlemen, this has been uh, season one of Building Jerusalem. I'm your host, General Ike. God bless and good night. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.